With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I read an article in Esquire magazine about the Rosewood incident and I saw it, it was on a newsstand. It was on a newsstand in Robertson. Robertson and, um, I think of Robertson and Beverly. And I, I opened up Esquire. I used to go to newsstands late at night and not buy the magazine. I just read the articles in the magazine. I just leave it up there. <laughs> not that I was cheap, but just like, I was just, at the end of just going, you know, just out of lock and reading it. So I read this article and I, and I, it's not that I didn't think anything of it. I just like, that's just terrible, right? And then John Peters, who actually was running the studio when I did Boys in the Hood, but he ended up um, coming out of, uh, uh, of that deal at Sony, he bought the rights to the, the, the Esquire article. So John Peters called me up and said, I bought the rights to this thing. I want, I want to do it with you. And, um, and so uh, you know, I, I looked at it again, and then he sent me down to Florida. <clears throat> and mind you, this is the first time I'd ever been around people who actually had been victims of mm. like, you know, of historical institutionalized racism, you know, like, you know, like, as I, you know, I've been down to the South before on, you know, on trips and stuff. They send black kids down South a little bit for the mm. summer and stuff, but to actually be there with people, these people were in there some at the time they were in their seventies and eighties, mm. some in the nineties. And they were telling me the stories about what happened, you know, in, in 1922, um, you know, doing when their town was like burned and you know the land was taken away from them, and people were murdered and killed. You know, by this incident, Rosewood incident, and um, and I was like, whoa, you know, you know, I was I was floored by it. I originally had plans to do this other picture that uh, Frank Price brought the rights for me for um, um, a book called Makes Me Wanna Holler, which I still want to do. And so um, I, I was like thinking, okay. This is interesting and stuff, right? And I'm leaving, talking to these people, 
um, and and mind you, the the younger generation stopped me. Now, mind you, they're in their 80s and 90s, so the younger generation is like in their 60s, right? The 50s and 60s, and there's these like thick black women, you know, where they got the big old arms and stuff like this and like this, like the, you know, the big mama arms. And this one woman, I forget her name, she's aunt and stuff, right? She's like, she said, she's like, baby, you gonna do the movie, right? I said, well, ma'am, I gotta get back to LA and I gotta look it over the stuff and I gotta like think about it and everything because I'm still thinking maybe I'll do make some holiday and maybe I'll figure this out and this. She says, she she pushes me with all her with all the boobs and the arms and everything in the corner. She says, no. <laughs> I was like, no, success. She says, baby, you have to do this movie. This is, you have to do if you don't do this movie it's not gonna be story's not gonna be told you have to do this movie she says listen I said okay ma'am she says I'm, I'm trying to get past her you know and his big old boobs and arms and stopping me and stuff she says listen either you do this movie or Steven Spielberg's gonna do the movie and we don't want him <laughs> she says this to me right and I said okay ma'am right so then I go and I start, I get, I look at the article, I look at the, the old newspaper accounts. And then I started reading about how there were several soldiers coming back from World War I. And they were black men who fought, you know, they were the first ones who actually fought outside the country, you know, for, you know, for the freedom of this country. And they're exposed to Europe and, and, and you know, and, and fighting the Germans and everything, you know, change them mentally to have to come back to deal with institutionalized racism mm-hmm. in the South. And so, and there's just always this, this falsehood within um, American um, historical records and everything like this, that black people were so benign in their persecution. And, and I've always hated that because, you know, in my family, you know, they tell stories about, you know, we didn't always get our ass kicked. You had to, you fought back, you had to move. That's why a lot of people... Um, the Great Migration, you know, when all this stuff, it was not just the Great Depression. You have people who were, were persecuted economically together, poor whites and blacks. It's going to be some stuff, right? Some some shit mm-hmm. happening. So a lot of people went up to Chicago and New York, but within those skirmishes of the institutionalized racism, there were there were rapes, there were murders, mm-hmm. there were assaults against children, and black people didn't all just take that shit. Man, they they fought back. You know what I mean? So, but they, they, you know, the white mainstream never writes about that. So, um, and I just said, you know what? I know that this happens. My my grandparents and great-grandparents know this happens, that people fought back. If there's a, if there's a character in here that's from, the, that's come back from the war, I can I can find a kind of a sense of uh, uh, thing, things, of, some type of resonance with contemporary audiences that is historically based in fact that I can put within the story because that's what they were saying in the accounts. They said some of the World War One veterans were fighting back once their families were being murdered. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Thursday, May 2nd, 2019. So I have been told first... Rest in peace, the late John Singleton, who passed away at age 51. I cannot emphasize enough. That is a spectacular disgrace. 
There's a lot of that in the system of racism, white supremacy, where black people, non-white people on the whole, end up dying very, very young. And 51 is extremely young uh, for someone who could have had uh, decades more uh, to make films and projects uh, directly addressing the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, John Singleton passed away this week at the age of 51. Uh, I hope folks uh, saw Rosewood. He did a lot of films addressing racism, white supremacy. Baby boy starts off with uh, the ISIS papers. Dr. Welsing talked about his effort to get some of her messaging into his films. Uh, Boys in the Hood, certainly. But Rosewood, uh, not a coincidence for us to be reading this book at this time on Sundown Towns and to have this be the moment where John Singleton passes away. But that was him speaking about why he made the film uh, Rosewood. Black people being purged uh, in the state of Florida and something that we've talked about regularly on this broadcast, black people fighting back. I think we had a listener who talked about that and several others where the narrative, yes, white terrorism, absolutely system of white supremacy, killing, raping, maiming black people. However, black people are not just cowards getting their head busted every other day. There has been a lot of black people fighting back that gets deliberately omitted. We talked about deception last week. Uh, We'll stop there. This is our book club, James Lowen, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. We're getting close to the halfway point of the book. We will go ahead and get started. This is the context of white supremacy audio segment number one. And again, condolences to the family of remembrances of John Singleton. Ordinances, written or oral. One way that cities and towns went all white, or stayed all white, was by passing an ordinance forbidding African Americans from being within their corporate limits after sundown, or prohibiting them from owning or renting property in the town. Or at least they say they did. Whether such ordinances ever existed has become controversial. My website tells of the controversy and lists towns with oral history of an ordinance. I've put considerable effort into finding such ordinances and have found only one in East Tennessee, reported in Chapter 4. The difficulty in finding ordinances provides a special case of the issues of written versus oral sources when it comes to sundown towns, so it's appropriate to treat those difficulties here. Diverse written sources tell of sundown ordinances banning African Americans. In Illinois, written references describe sundown ordinances in East Alton, Fairfield, Granite City, Heron, and Kenilworth. The Negroes of Nebraska, a product of the Nebraska Writers' Project during the Depression, tells that Plattsmouth and other cities in Kansas and Nebraska passed sundown ordinances. Documents also tell of other enactments by local governments. The Inventory of the County Archives of Pike County, Ohio, for example, prepared by the WPA in 1942, tells how 
The Downing family, original proprietors of Waverley, the county seat, gave to the county its central square for a courthouse site in 1861. The Downings caused to be written into the agreement accepting the donation of the public square, a provision that if any Negroes ever should be permitted to settle within the corporation limits, the square should be sold and the proceeds revert to the Down heirs. Present-day Waverly has no Negro residence. The Downings said that the correct way to treat a Negro was to kill him. Despite these sources, and many other written and oral reports of ordinances, finding such laws has proven difficult. Many, indeed, perhaps most, towns have lost their records. Consider the case of Kenilworth. That affluent Chicago suburb was the creation of its developer, Joseph Sears. Widespread oral and written tradition holds that he made it a sundown town in its founding documents. The town's official history, Joseph Sears and his Kenilworth, by Colleen Kilner, hired by the Kenilworth Historical Society for the task, begins by designating Kenilworth number one on the suburban totem pole, according to The Press and it's an understatement to call her account of Kenilworth sympathetic. Kilner uses italics to emphasize the four principles that guided Sears. These restrictions were incorporated into the village ordinance. One, large lots. Two, high standards of construction. Three, no alleys. Four, sales to cock. Occasions only. When I visited the Kenilworth Historical Society in 2002, however, my request for Kenilworth's ordinances or incorporation documents baffled them. Helpful staff members provided boxes of papers, including scattered minutes of meetings of the board Sears created to govern Kenilworth in its early days, but no ordinances. Surely, Kenilworth had ordinances, one prohibiting alleys, for example. It can't be found either, but Kenilworth has no alleys, just as it has no blacks. Moreover, the local acclaim that met Kilner's 1969 book, and its reprinting without change in 1990, suggests that Kenilworth residents had no quarrel with its statement about the restrictive ordinance, because it was accurate. Even some recent towns have lost their records. Rolling Hills Estates, for example, founded probably as a sundown suburb of Los Angeles in 1958, can find no ordinances before 1975, according to a municipal clerk there even when records exist. Finding these ordinances proves next to impossible, because they never got codified, that is, listed in a book, organized by topic, or even by year. Attorney Armand Durfner explains, a lot of ordinances never got codified. They only put in the things they were going to need all the time. 
and some small towns have never codified their ordinances at all. Ordinances are real, written or not. Some white Americans have told me that without a written ordinance, there's little evidence that a town kept out African Americans. This is absurd. Major League Baseball, which kept out African Americans from 1890 to 1947, never had a formal prohibition. In fact, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, commissioner of baseball from 1921 through 1944, stated, There is no rule, formal or informal, against the hiring of Negroes in organized baseball. Nevertheless, everyone knew blacks weren't allowed, and when the Pittsburgh Pirates sought to hire Josh Gibson from the Negro Leagues in 1943, Landis wouldn't let them. It's the same with sundown towns. Laws about daily practice are rarely read anyway. When newcomers move to a town, they learn the rules from those already there. If people say that it's illegal to park facing south on the east side of a north-south street, newcomers park correctly facing north. Oral tradition is crucial because people live in the oral tradition. They don't go to City Hall and look up ordinances. If the written ordinance cannot now be located, so what? If whites have not had the power legally to keep African Americans out of town since 1917, so what? Tell that to the three African American families in Saline County, Illinois, whose homes whites dynamited in 1923. To Harvey Clark, whose furnishings were destroyed in the 1951 Cicero riot to the engineers on the Wabash Railroad who took care to pull their work trains east beyond the Niantic, Illinois village limits when a black work crew was on board because it was against the law for African Americans to stay in Niantic overnight. Or to black would-be home buyers in Maroa today who are not shown houses because a realtor doesn't think she should sell to them because of an ordinance. Historian Clayton Kramer grasps this point. When I lived in La Crescenta, just north of Glendale, California, in the 1970s, locals told me that Glendale had maintained a no-blacks-allowed-after-sundown ordinance on the books until the end of World War II. I'm not sure that I believe that an actual ordinance to that effect was still on the books that late. Of course, just because it isn't in writing doesn't mean it doesn't get enforced. Ordinances are passed orally first, after all, by voice vote of the body passing them. Whether they get written down depends on several factors, including the level of record-keeping in the town. Here are two examples of ordinances passed orally in rather recent years. New England towns transact some of their important business by town meeting, and in 1973, 
the annual meeting of Ashby, Massachusetts, voted 148 to 79 against inviting people of color into the town. Sure enough, the 1980 census showed Ashby with 2,311 people, including no African Americans. Newmarket, in southwestern Iowa, repassed its sundown ordinance even later in the 1980s. African-American John Baskerville, now a historian at the University of Northern Iowa, tells the story. I played in a band called West Wind from Tarkio, Missouri, in the northwest corner of the state of Missouri. In the summer of 1984 or 1985, we had a chance to play a street dance in Newmarket for a guy who owned a car dealership and a restaurant and was also a member of the Newmarket City Council. We'd been playing for a couple of hours and it was starting to get dark when during one of our breaks between sets, he came over and said exactly, Hey, we almost had an incident here. The sheriff reminded me that it was against city ordinance for a colored person to be in town after dark and that we were about to break the law. So, since most of the members of the city council are here, it was the only happening party in town that night, we held a special meeting of the council and voted to suspend the law for the night. I mind you, for the night. He went on to inform me that, to his knowledge, all of those little towns in southwest Iowa, Gravity, Bedford, Villisca, most of Taylor County, had laws prohibiting African Americans in town after dark, and that if we were going to continue to play in the area, we'd better check first before booking any gigs in the area. So Newmarket's sundown ordinance went right back into effect the following night. Twenty years after the 1964 Civil Rights Act made it illegal for a bar owner to keep African Americans out of his or her tavern, city officials of Newmarket thought they had the power to keep them out of an entire town, at least after dark. Apparently, they still do, for the 2000 census showed no African Americans in Newmarket and none in Gravity, Bedford, or Villisca. Indeed, neither Taylor County nor adjoining Adams County had a single black household. Errors of Inclusion and Exclusion In the end, I did my damnedest to find the data. But all the deception and omissions, especially in the written record, make sundown towns hard to research. Therefore, I can't be sure of all the claims made about sundown towns in this book. Some towns I list as sundown may not be. Some may merely have happened to have no African Americans decade after decade. There is also the question of change. A town may have been sundown for decades, but may not be sundown today. Chapter 14 
Sundown Towns Today describes the relaxation of sundown policies in many towns and suburbs since about 1980. I certainly don't claim that all the towns that I describe as confirmed are all white on purpose to this day. When deliberating whether to list a town as sundown based on sometimes scanty information, I tried to minimize errors of inclusion and exclusion. An error of inclusion would be falsely classing a town as sundown when it was not. Such a mistake could upset townspeople who might protest that they are not racist and the town never had a sundown policy. Uncorrected, the inaccuracy might also deter black families from moving to the town. I don't mean to cause these problems, and I apologize for any such errors. All readers should check out the history of a given town for themselves, rather than taking my word for its policies. Please give me feedback if you learn that I've wrongly listed a town as sundown when it was not. I'll make a correction on my website, and if possible, in future editions of this book. In practical terms, however, I doubt that any notoriety a town mistakenly receives from its listing in my book will make a significant difference to its future. Moreover, if a town protests that it is welcoming, such an objection itself ends the harm by countering the notoriety and increasing the likelihood that African-American families will test its waters and experience that welcome. A happy result. An error of exclusion would be missing a town that kept out African-Americans. Such a mistake might encourage the town to stay sundown and to continue to cover up its policy. People of goodwill in the community might imagine no problem exists, while my erroneous omission would hardly bother those in the town who want to maintain its sundown character. Such an error might also mislead a black family to move in without fully understanding the risk. Nationally. Such errors might convince readers that sundown towns have been less common than is really the case, thus lessening readers' motivation to eliminate sundown policies and draining our nation's reservoir of some of the goodwill needed to effect change. Some towns I've confirmed as sundown through a single specific written source, often by a forthright local historian or a single oral statement with convincing details. For example, the following anecdote, told to me by a Pinckneyville native then in graduate school, would, by itself, have convinced me that Pinckneyville, Illinois, was a sundown town and displayed a sign. Pinckneyville was indeed a sundown town. I grew up three miles east of town, and I can vividly recall though my mom and aunts vehemently deny it, seeing a sign under the city limits sign saying, No Coloreds After Dark. I don't know when they came down, I'd presume late 60s, early 70s, 
because I don't recall them when I was of junior high age. However, I'm sure they did exist, because one of my most vivid memories is of being four or five years old and driving to town with my dad. I was becoming a voracious reader, and I read the sign and said, But that's wrong, Daddy. They're colors, our local word for Crayolas, not coloreds. He laughed and laughed at me, finally saying, No, baby, not colors, coloreds. You know, darkies. It's just a nicer way of saying niggers. In fact, many other sources, written and oral, confirm Pinckneyville. For other towns, the evidence is considerably weaker, not always yielding a definite yes or no answer. I believe my responsibility is to state the most likely conclusion based on the preponderance of evidence I have, even though often that conclusion may not be proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. To be too insistent on solid proof before listing a town as sundown risks an error of exclusion. To list a town as sundown with inadequate evidence risks an error of inclusion. It's a balancing act. We've seen that evidence of a town's sundown practices can come from oral history, newspapers of the time, local histories, newspaper articles written today based on some of the above, and various other sources, confirmed with census data. Getting such evidence usually requires on-site research, contact with current or former residents, and or published secondary sources in a library. For most towns, this research is doable and not too difficult. Most on-site inquiries quickly reveal whether an all-white town is intentional. My biggest problem was that I soon discovered that most of the thousands of all-white towns in the North hadn't always been all-white and probably became all-white on purpose. I therefore had far more towns to check out than I could possibly manage. How have sundown towns managed to stay so white for so long? Their whiteness was enforced. And the next chapter tells how. Part 4. Sundown Towns in Operation Chapter 9. Enforcement Michelle Tate summarizing oral history collected in and around Effingham, Illinois, in the fall of 2002, wrote, It was well known any black people arriving in town were not to venture beyond the block the bus stop or train station were in. My father even remembers a group of three teenage boys bragging that they had seen the niggers from the bus stop walking down the street and stopped them and told them they were not allowed to leave the bus stop. Another individual, who is slightly older than my parents and lived in Effingham, said the police would patrol the train station and bus stop to ensure black people didn't leave them. 
She stated that she was unsure whether this was due to prejudice on the part of police or to protect the black people from the individuals residing in Effingham. A striking characteristic of sundown towns is their durability. Once a town or suburb defines itself white, it usually stays white for decades. Yet all white towns are inherently unstable. Americans are always on the move, going to new places, and so are African Americans. Remaining white in census after census isn't achieved easily. How is this whiteness maintained? Residents have used a variety of invisible enforcement mechanisms that become visible whenever an African-American comes to town or threatens to come to town. The Illinois State Register stated the basic method of enforcement in 1908, in the aftermath of the Springfield riot. A Negro is an unwelcome visitor and is soon informed he must not remain in the town. But there are many variations in how this message has been delivered. We shall begin with the cruder methods relied upon by independent sundown towns, then progress to the more sophisticated and subtler measures that sundown suburbs have taken to remain overwhelmingly white. But we must note that even elite sundown suburbs have resorted to violence on occasion. The Inadvertent Visitor From time to time, an African-American person or family have found themselves in a sundown town completely by accident. Immediately they were suspect, and usually they were in danger. Sundown towns rarely tolerated African-American visitors who happened within their gates when night fell, even if they were there inadvertently, even if they had no knowledge of the town's tradition beforehand, whites viewed them as having no right to be in our town after dark, and often replied with behavior that was truly vile yet in the service of good as defined by the community. Hiking from town to town was a common mode of travel before the 1920s and grew common again during the Great Depression. Walking was the most exposed form of transit through a sundown town. As we saw previously, whites in Comanche County, Texas, drove out their African-Americans in 1886. Local historian Billy Bob Lightfoot tells of an African-American who made a bet some years later that he could walk across the county but was never seen again after he stopped at a farm near De Leon for a drink of water. He made less than eight miles before whites killed him. Walking could be just as dangerous in the Midwest. A 1905 article in the Fairmont, West Virginia Free Press provides a glimpse of the process by which residents maintained Syracuse, Ohio as a sundown community. In Syracuse, Ohio, on the Ohio River, a town of about 2,000 inhabitants, no Negro is permitted to live 
not even to stay overnight under any consideration. This is an absolute rule in this year 1905 and has existed for several generations. The enforcement of this unwritten law is in the hands of the boys from eight to twenty years of age. When a Negro is seen in town during the day, he's generally told of these traditions and is warned to leave before sundown. If he fails to take heed, he is surrounded at about the time darkness begins and is addressed by the leader of the gang in about this language. No nigger is allowed to stay in this town overnight. Get out of here now and get out quick. He sees from twenty-five to thirty boys around him talking in subdued voices and waiting to see whether he obeys. If he hesitates, little stones begin to reach him from unseen quarters and soon persuade him to begin his hegira. He's not allowed to walk, but told to get on his little dog trot. The command is always effective, for it is backed by stones in the ready hands of boys none too friendly. So long as he keeps up a good gait, the crowd, which follows just at his heels, and which keeps growing until it sometimes numbers seventy-five to one hundred boys, is good-natured and contents itself with yelling, laughing, and hurling jibes at its victim. But let him stop his trot for one moment, from any cause whatever, and the stones immediately take effect as their chief persuader. Thus they follow him to the farthest limits of the town, where they send him on while they return to the city with triumph and tell their fathers all about the function, how fast the victim ran, how scared he was, how he pleaded and promised that he would go and never return if they would only leave him alone. Then the fathers tell how they used to do the same thing, and thus the heroes of two wars spend the rest of the evening by the old campfire recounting their several campaigns. Anywhere that a black man might be unexpected, walking was hazardous. In Sullivan's Hollow, one of the few sundown communities in Mississippi, white farmers caught an African-American on foot early in the twentieth century, tied a bundle of barbed wire to his back, and made him crawl a mile on all fours before letting him leave the hollow. In Rawls County, Missouri, just south of Hannibal, even the mere sight of a black man at times could throw Rawls County white women into a panic, writes historian Greg Andrews. Ilasco Judge John Northcutt bound over John Grigsby, an African-American, to a grand jury in July 1906 after Etta Hayes accused Grigsby of attempted criminal assault. All Grigsby had done was to step off a train at Salt River and walk in the direction of her house. Although she admitted that Grigsby never came within fifty yards of her, the judge still held him for the grand jury. Eventually he was released. Grigsby got off easy. I have other stories of black men being convicted or shot on the spot for the same offense.
After a race riot, African-American refugees usually faced particular hostility when they fled on foot to other towns because the rioting was contagious and traveled ahead of them. Roberta Seneschal, whose book on the Springfield, Illinois riot of 1908 is the standard account, writes, When a lone Springfield refugee appeared on the streets of the village of Spalding, eight miles from the city, he was greeted by a menacing mob of nearly one hundred whites. Deputy sheriffs arrived before any harm was done and saw to it that the man moved on. Black refugees sparked hostility outside of Sangamon County, too. When a small band of Springfield blacks appeared in the village of Green Ridge in Macoupin County to beg for food, the residents of the place denied them anything and stoned them out of town. Public Transportation Through Sundown Towns After 1940, walking from town to town became uncommon, as most Americans had enough money for public transportation or automobiles. But trains and buses posed hazards, too, when they stopped in sundown towns, and sometimes merely while passing through. Even Pullman porters, just doing their jobs on trains stopped in stations, were threatened in some towns. According to a leader of the Comanche County Historical Museum, whites in De Leon would rope black porters and drag them through the streets and put them back on the train just for meanness. Porters took to hiding in the baggage car during the time the train was in Comanche County. Eventually, the Houston and Texas Central Railroad asked De Leon to move the town sundown sign from the train station because white residents were using it as a pretext. So De Leon relocated it to the town well. Immediately after the 1899 riot that expelled all African Americans from Pena, Illinois, a traveler passing through observed, The men have the Afrophobia so badly that the colored porters on the trains crawl under the seats when they go through Pena. After White, drove African Americans from Pierce City, Missouri in 1901, according to a reporter, citizens declare no Negro porters will be allowed to run through here in trains, and it's probable the Frisco line will have to change porters at Springfield hereafter. Today a shot was fired into a train, and it is supposed to have been aimed at the porter. William Pickens, writing in 1923, told of harassment in the Ozarks. When trainloads of colored people recently passed through, bound from the east to some great convention in Muskogee, Oklahoma, they had to shut the windows and pull down the shades to avoid the murderous missiles that are sometimes hurled, especially at a nigger in a pullman, by definition, uppity. In Wheeler County, Texas, in the 1920s, according to Arthur Raper, as one man put it, Negroes weren't even permitted to stick their heads out of the train coaches. 
All kinds of dangers might beset the unwary traveler who actually got off at a sundown town. In 1921, an African-American had been working in Ballinger, Texas, and took the train home to Teague in central Texas. By mistake, he took the wrong train and was put off at Comanche in the middle of the night, according to the Chicago Defender. He entered the waiting room of the railroad station, where he was found asleep the next morning by a local police officer. It soon became known that he was in town, the first one to have been seen here for thirty-five years. Crowds of townspeople gathered around him, and among them were many young men and women who never before had seen a man of our race. For his own safety, the man was taken to the county jail and locked up, pending the arrival of the next outgoing train. He was escorted to the station by an armed guard and placed aboard the train. In Oneida, Tennessee, in about 1940, the police were not so helpful, according to local historian Esther Sanderson, writing in 1958. One Negro hobo got off a freight train in Oneida. Police and civilians started toward him, and he started running. His bullet-riddled body was brought back out of the woods in about an hour. One young pilot from Scott County in World War II, who saw the Negro after he was killed, remarked on his return from the war, You know, as I watched the blood flow from the wounds of the dead and dying Negroes on our transport planes, I thought of that old Negro who was killed in Oneida. Some sundown towns allowed African Americans traveling by train or bus to wait in the stations but venture no further, even during the day. So far, these examples have antedated World War II, but some towns, including Effingham, Illinois, as noted at the head of the chapter, continued to enforce this practice much more recently. David Blair reported that this rule worked a special hardship on black greyhound bus drivers in Effingham in the mid-1960s. His father worked in the bus station cafeteria. He would sometimes give black bus drivers a two-block ride to the Brentwood Hotel. White bus drivers could just walk over to it from the station, but black drivers had to call a cab and then wait longer for the cab to show than the walk would have been. My father would offer to give them a lift since he was white. To my knowledge, he was never hassled because of it, but the black drivers would ask if he was aware that there could be problems just in giving them a two-block lift. Effingham and a few other towns enforced this policy even during the daytime. Many towns did after dark. Taxis are another form of public transportation, but until recently, taxi drivers in sundown towns simply refused to pick up black would-be fares. The same refusals still affect taxi service in many urban, all-white neighborhoods today. One exception was Ray Pettit, who ran the Liberty Cab Company in Waverly, a sundown town in southern Ohio, until his death in the 1960s. 
His granddaughter, Jean Blackburn, remembers her mother's stories about how my grandfather would transport blacks out of the city limits, should they be in town too late to make it on their own, so they wouldn't be punished. Of course, his assistants, while kind and even possibly life-saving, didn't challenge the sundown law, but enforced it. Automobile Travel Through Sundown Towns The advent of private automobiles made life a little safer for African-American travelers, but not much. Often, bad things have happened to motorists of color whose vehicles broke down. In Memphis, Missouri, near the Iowa line, around 1960, according to a librarian who grew up there, a black family stopped on the edge of town with car trouble. Some local men gathered quickly to stop the agitators from wrecking the town. Even though they found an innocent family instead, they saw fit to scare them out of town. It was a get-your-car-fixed-and-go confrontation. I heard that one of the white men even shot a warning shot over the car just to make his point clear. She went on to emphasize that many whites in Memphis, including her family, found their behavior to be mean, ridiculous, and embarrassing, especially considering that the black family members didn't seek to stop in Memphis, but were there because their car broke down. But no one stood up for the black family at the side of the road at the time. Unlike Missouri, whites in Bono, South Carolina, didn't miss when they used a shotgun to warn African Americans to clear out fast. A black church group had rented a bus and driver from a white-owned company. As told in the August 17, 1940, Pittsburgh Courier, a national African American newspaper, according to the Reverend Mr. Robert Mack, the bus developed motor trouble and was driven into a filling station at Bono and left by the driver with consent of the operator, while another bus was being secured from North Charleston. Leaving Bono at ten o'clock for the second bus, the driver returned at midnight. As passengers were transferring to the second bus, eight white men drove up and ordered the excursioners to get out here right quick. We don't allow no damn niggers round here after sundown. The excursioners, the white driver, and the station operator tried to explain the emergency to no avail. A second car drove up with eight more white men who began firing on the group with shotguns. Having no weapons, the excursioners fled into nearby woods. Many were still missing when the bus left at one Monday morning. Four church members and the white driver were wounded by the shotgun blasts. In Owasso, Michigan, an ultimatum from an officer of the law terrified a stranded motorist. Local historian Helen Harrelson recalls overhearing him frantically phoning relatives in Flint, 25 miles to the east, and saying, The police have given me half an hour to get out of town. 
But sometimes police intervention in sundown towns, while fearful, ironically resulted in better service. Residents of Pinckneyville, Illinois, and Harrison, Arkansas, tell how police helped to get parts or have a car towed to the nearest interracial town. The blacks were very grateful, my Harrison informants concluded, for the sundown violation was thus avoided. In Arcola, Illinois, according to a then-resident, service was even better. When a black family's bus broke down there on a Sunday, police got a mechanic to open his garage and fix the problem that day so they could leave Arcola. And in Martinsville, Indiana, located on the highway between Indiana University and Indianapolis, police, until recently, would carry African-American student hitchhikers to the other side of town, thus preserving the racial purity of the town as well as the welfare of the hitchhiker. Keep moving was the refrain, no matter why African-Americans stopped. Local historian Gene Swaim tells of a shameful incident in Cedar County, Missouri. Even a busload of black choir members who saved the lives of four El Dorado Springs teenagers by pulling them from a burning car were then turned away. In Mena, Arkansas, African Americans didn't even have to stop to get in trouble. Shirley Manning, a high school student there in 1960-61, describes the scene. The local boys would threaten with words and knives Negroes who would come through town and follow them to the outskirts of town, shouting, Better not let the sun set on your black ass in Mena, Arkansas. And they often bumped the car with their bumper from behind. I was along in a car which did this once and saw it done more than once. Moving vehicles were also targeted in Benton in southern Illinois in the mid-1980s. White teenagers threw eggs and shouted nigger at African Americans who drove through town after dark. Another way to vex African American motorists was to refuse to sell them fuel. Whites in Slocum, Texas, wouldn't sell gas to African Americans until 1929. In Mount Olive and Gillespie, Illinois, this policy was in effect at least through the 1950s. According to historian John Kaiser, who grew up in Mount Olive, African American motorists routinely carried an extra 10-gallon tank in their trunk when traveling from St. Louis to Chicago because no one would sell them gas en route. A former resident of Pena, Illinois, reported that filling station attendants in that central Illinois town wouldn't pump gas for African-American customers as recently as the 1960s. Back then, stations weren't self-serve, so they had to go on to Vandalia or Kincaid. To this day, many African-Americans still take care to drive through Pena without stopping. Gas stations in Martinsville, Indiana, refused to sell to African-American motorists as recently as the early 1990s. As racist as Mississippi was during the civil rights struggle, I lived there for eight years and never heard of a town, 
or even an individual gas station that wouldn't sell gasoline to African Americans. It seems irrational to refuse to sell fuel to a person whom you want out of town, when fuel is precisely what they need to get out of town. In the case of Pena, moreover, at least fifteen other nearby towns in all directions were also sundown towns, including Vandalia and probably Kincaid. If they all similarly refused to sell gas to African Americans, Central Illinois would wind up with hundreds of stranded black motorists, hardly the outcome whites intended. Driving While Black Harassment hasn't stopped. On the contrary, it's become official. In many communities, police follow and stop African Americans and search their cars when they drive in or out, making it hard for African Americans to work, shop, or live there. The practice has been going on for decades. Jim Clayton, who grew up in Johnston City, Illinois, writes, In the late 1940s, the police often followed any car containing blacks that turned off Route 37 into town and there were many such cars on that route because it was a main line from the south to Chicago. Route 37 is now Interstate 57, but black motorists who stray are still in trouble. Sixty miles north, a recent graduate of Salem High School reports that police officers there say on their radio, Carlo de Cole coming down X Street to alert other officers to the presence of African Americans. In Dwight, in northern Illinois, on the other interstate highway going to Chicago, police used NCIC as shorthand for New Coon in County, whom they then harassed out of town, according to an ambulance volunteer there in the 1980s. Florida resident Melissa Sue Brewer wrote about a related alphabetical expression used by police in that state, NBD, meaning nigger on the beach after dark. Only a few sundown suburbs resorted to the brazen city limits signs used by some independent sundown towns. Instead, police often provide the first defense against African Americans in sundown suburbs. Police harassment, including racial profiling, can be even scarier than private violence, because one can hardly turn to the police for protection. Sundown suburbs near cities with sizable African-American populations are especially likely to rely on their police and the notoriety in the black community they earn to stay white. Mary Pat Baumgartner pointed this out about Hampton, her pseudonym for a New York City suburb. Since residents cannot do away with arterial streets altogether, however, they turn to the police to scrutinize those who use them. Residents of sundown suburbs expect and applaud police harassment of outsiders. As Gary Kennedy state representative from Dallas, wrote, Blacks, Chicanos, and even poor whites with older automobiles avoid Highland Park for fear of being hassled by the police. 
Gregory Dorr, now a professor of history at the University of Alabama, spent the first twenty-two years of his life in Darien, Connecticut, a sundown suburb of New York City. He reports, Darien's Explorer Post 53 is one of the only volunteer adult student-run ambulance corps in the nation. Well, the posties, as we call them, all had belt-worn pagers that could also double as police scanners. They, and those of us with them, often monitored the police, for giggles and grins, and to give friends a warning if cops were called to break up a party. Whenever an African-American was spotted in town, most frequently walking or hitching along Route 1 or I-95, the cops were called to check them out. They often stopped these folks, questioned them, etc. About the only black folk not harassed were those who were obviously domestics waiting at the few bus stops along Route 1. Recently, such racial profiling has become newsworthy, leading to the term DWB, driving while black. Lawsuits or public protests have been lodged against the practice in suburbs in Maryland, New Jersey, Illinois, California, and several other states. White Americans sometimes get a sense of the adventure DWB entails when they're passengers in black-driven cars in sundown towns. Consider this account from Vandalia, Illinois, in about 1998. When I was in high school in the late 90s, a white friend from my high school and I were backseat passengers in a car driven by a friend from a neighboring town who was black. One of his friends, who was also black, sat in the passenger seat. We ended up driving on the town's main road, and the two guys got extremely nervous, claiming that every time they drove through Vandalia, they got pulled over by the police for no good reason. One of them said a police officer pulled him over to simply ask, What's your business here? Sure enough, an officer pulled us over and forcefully asked for all of our licenses. He claimed that the driver had taken too long to turn on his headlights, which I didn't think was the case. As soon as the officer saw our licenses, he got a very embarrassed look on his face, said he was sorry to bother us, and left. He spoke directly to my girlfriend and me. Our parents were fairly prominent figures in the town, and as soon as the officer saw our last names on our licenses, he felt embarrassed for stopping us for no real reason. Who knows how the scenario would have played out had those two guys not had the two of us with them. In an ironic sense, the police aren't to blame for in a way they're only doing good police work. As a Glendale, California police officer explained to resident Lois Johnson, officers stopped any African-American person after dark because they didn't live there. The police never could have stopped white motorists because they didn't live there. The officers would find that out only after they stopped them. In sundown towns, African Americans, by definition, shouldn't be there, hence are suspicious. 
Sometimes these practices die hard. A communications company in Carmel, Indiana, a suburb of Indianapolis that had been all white until the 1980s, employed a number of African Americans in the mid-1990s. By this point, Carmel had about 250 black residents in a total population of some 30,000. After DWB complaints, including a successful lawsuit against the city's police department, Carmel created special tags for black employees of the company, visible to police officers, to identify those black drivers as acceptable. Thus they, unlike all other African-American motorists, would be safe from unprovoked stops. Carmel was no longer all white, but apparently its police hadn't gotten the message. Context of White Supremacy Again, recognizing the late filmmaker, victim of racism, white supremacy, John Singleton, passed away this week at the age of 51. A disgrace. That is what the system of white supremacy produces. Hopefully we can all go about the business of solving this problem so we don't have to continue to endure losing extraordinarily talented black people like Mr. Singleton. Again, context of white supremacy, our book club. First audio segment of James Lowen's Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, White Supremacy. If you have, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have questions, comments, uh, suggestions, thoughts on the first segment of the audio reading, dial in a uh, number, new number, relatively 605 313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Mr. Singleton, he mentioned at the beginning that he, as opposed to doing Rosewood, he was interested in doing a film on the book Makes Me Want to Holler by Nathan McCall. I've read that as well. Reading is more important than watching television. That book is also a lot about racism. After 17 months of being dislocated myself, flood victim Gus T. Renegade was finally able to return to my residence yesterday. 17 months, a displaced flood victim. <sighs> 17 months, I did not have my library. I had totally forgotten. Oh, wow. I had lots of books. Man, I'm accustomed to broadcasting and having my books so that I can do cool things like Slocum, Texas was mentioned. I can show off all the hard work we have done in a decade at the context of white supremacy. I said, Slocum, we covered that 
summer of 2014, the 1910 Slocum Massacre, an act of genocide in East Texas. E.R. Bills, suspected race soldier. And I believe that's a cowbell, too. You have to go back and listen to the archive. One snippet from the book. Uh, You can go back, and I probably read more in the text uh, during that segment with Mr. Bills. Uh, But he has uh, his third chapter is titled Media Response. This should sound familiar from what we've covered in Sundown Towns. And as much as many outrageous reports have appeared in the papers over the count, uh, country concerning an alleged race war in and around Palestine, Texas, reports that were and are utterly at variance with truth and veracity doing the name of Palestine and Anderson County and the inhabitants thereof a very great injustice and which constitute a slander on this people. And since these reports have been extensively printed under a Palestine dateline and yet showing on their face that they were not written in nor sent from this city because of their distorted statements, statements showing that the writers not in the least familiar with this section's conditions, we deem it our privilege and our right to make a statement of what actually did happen and request that you give it all publicity in your columns. We ask this as a privilege of fair treatment. This is quoted, uh, Mr. Bills is quoting from the Palestine Daily Herald, August 3rd, 1910, and he talks about how they did exactly what Mr. Lowen talked about, campaign of deception. What do you mean? Niggers were ran out of Slocum Tech. What do you mean? We were on a spree shooting and killing niggers in Palestine. Get out of here. That's just lie. You're lying and making us look bad. Stop, you know, saying that stuff in the newspaper. That's exactly what Mr. Lowen has been saying has been a major pat. Sometimes they'll brag about it, and then other times they just do the lies, and absolutely not. We love the niggers. Every single one of them. Darkies are our friend. If you find any of them here, let us know. You can go back in the archives and hear more about the uh, Slocum massacre. We had uh, one of the victims' ancestors on that broadcast as well. If you have commentary you would like to share, star six one. First few folks who dialed in, if you have comments, questions you would like to share, uh, lines should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, let's see. We'll get our caller at 1553, and then we'll nab a retired firefighter. Hey, how you doing, Gus? Right poorly. Um, some, <laughs> me too. Um, some things I picked up on. Um, a car full of uh, coal was uh, a phrase you, was uh, um, was used by police officers to... Uh, let other police officers know that uh, black people victims was in the town. Um, made me think about the book, the uh, the officer. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, was it breaking ranks? Was he was on your show? I think he was from the Seattle, California area, and how he also said that uh, officers present day would also uh, use uh, cold words for uh, black people. Um, that was pulled over. Um, hobos, um, refugees, uh, made me remember and think back to uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, 
you know, during that time, I was real confused. I'm like, you know, we're American citizens, and we're being referred to as refugees. So, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was that's the right context that the author is using refugee as far as um, black fleeing um, terrorists just for passing through a town. So I don't, I don't know would that be the right term to use. Um, other towns. So now that I'm now that I'm the president with the presidential elections, I can't help but to wonder uh, when I hear what town they grew up in. So now that I'm listening to this book read, um, I often uh, research and, and inquire whether it was a Sundown town. Um, you know, the, the current uh, Democratic candidate uh, Biden. He's from uh, Scranton. Um, 92, the county, 92% white, about 6 to 2% black, with an incarceration rate of 6,000 per 100,000 for black people. Very interesting. Um, I, I will have to research and see um, if, um, if the book read mentioned uh, that town or that county um, with square emphasized. Um, that's all I have right now. Much obliged, sir. Uh, retired firefighter, thank you for your patience. Greetings, Gus. Greeting everybody. Greetings. Watch out. I took notes. <laughs> Watch out. I took notes. <laughs> uh, audiences uh, written, uh, uh, written, unwritten rules. Uh, one that stood out was the not selling of property to, uh, to Negroes. Uh, uh, which is, you know, very strategic uh, as far as to uh, keep uh, the uh, areas uh, pristine uh, uh, white. Uh, the example of no written rule in Major League Baseball uh, was a good example of, of an ordin ordinance that, that does not have to be written down. That also was with the NFL, it was also with horse racing, uh, where they had these uh, unwritten rules uh, that you couldn't find on a book somewhere, but uh, they was they were definitely were enforced of not uh, allowing uh, black people, in this case black males, to uh, obtain a job. Uh, just because it's not in writing doesn't mean that it doesn't get enforced. Uh, white youth, once again, white youth, it was always have been at the head of enforcing sundown regulations uh as far as i mean that, that that's just from a stand from a military standpoint it's going to be nature in itself that the a young person that's impressionable that's racist is going to and, and have the their their physical faculties about themselves uh are going to be the people who actually enforce these these rules in this case terror and racism white supremacy uh public transportation uh, in uh, sundown towns, uh, very methodical, uh, military-like, uh, black porters being mistreated, uh, 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 them being accosted off of the trains, uh, sh uh, shooting, shooting at the train itself, uh, because, I mean, one can, at that particular point in time, one can shoot at a, uh, uh, a, a car, knowing that, for the most part, 
you know, it's nothing but black people on it because they had black people even sectioned on the trains uh, in a lot of cases during that time. Uh, yes, you could get killed getting on the wrong bus or the wrong train uh, 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 and, and end up being in one of those places. Uh, that was a, a factor in the last reading. Uh, it reminds me of several uh, movies, which I'm, I'm not going to get deep into, but just touch on the movie, the, the movie series that was about the Temptations, when the Mot when Motown Records, you know, the, these record companies, black record companies, they had to travel all over this part of the world. Uh, I'm pretty sure they were quite aware of quote-unquote sundown towns. It was demonstrated in the uh, movie series. Uh, at one time when their bus broke down and they were changing the tire and they ran into some trouble uh, with uh, white terrorists in that, in that particular movie. Uh, uh, also, the same thing took place with uh, the traveling, uh, traveling of the quote-unquote Negro Leagues. They had to know the places. They had to know on what, what you can get as far as if you can, you can go into the place and go to the back and get a sandwich or something like that and then get the hell out of there. Uh, uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of times, a lot of cases, black, white people would even work against their best interests financially. No, you can't get gas. You know, get the hell out of here. The whole idea of separating themselves from non-white people was paramount. Practicing racism, I'll put it that way, was paramount more so than making a profit. Uh, uh, coming to the end, uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone did a movie about a Vietnam veteran who came into this uh, town. Uh, he basically kind of retarded the, the entire concept by putting a white person as the principal factor in the movie. Uh, because basically what that actually was, I can't think of remember the name of the movie, uh, but, but what that actually was, was a sundown town. Uh, they had law enforcement to follow him out of the town. And in turn in the movie, he kind of like refused to leave and, and, uh, in the movie just, you know, became an action faction, you know, with Stallone, he has all of these different series of, of the same person, but that, that's, really supposed to have been a black person in the movie uh, uh, because basically it was sundown type of behavior that existed all through that movie. Also, the movie uh, The Heat of the Night uh, with Sidney Poitier as being the uh, star of the movie basically had, had a uh, pretty good description of what a sundown town is like uh, also. Uh, and in and, and, and the movie, Sidney Poitier actually played the role of a enforcement official on top of it. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, retired firefighter breaking the notes out for us today and everything professional. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have comments, questions, uh, which you heard from the first uh, audio segment, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, ma'am. Be heard. Greetings, Mr. Demery Four. Yes, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Um, first of all, you know, I guess what we learned from 
you know, this book is that uh, whites have been terrorizing black people for decades. And it's just, you know, <clears throat> recorded evidence of, you know, isolated incidents. And we know that there were a lot worse. But like on, uh, well, starting out on uh, page 220, you know, when they were, you know, mentioning earlier about the ordinance, you know, they didn't even bother to write them down. They, whether they exist or did not exist, you know, according to the book, you know, wasn't even relevant because they were enforcing. Like when some visitors come, they would uh, suspend it the ordinance for a night. You know, it reminded me of what uh, Mr. Fuller talked about in South Africa when they had apartheid and they'd have some dignitaries come from Japan or the Orient, then uh, they would make them honorary whites for that period of time because no blacks or coloreds, you know, was allowed. So they would uh, suspend that you know, which makes it, you know, all it's all ridiculous anyway. But I'd like to <clears throat> say that, you know, send prayers out for uh, the director, John Singleton, 51 years old, that passed, you know, a system of white supremacy, early death, you know, for black men is, you know, sort of a norm. Um, <clears throat> He produced Boys in the Hood, Baby Boy, Rosewood. And I was just thinking how many more he would have produced and what other great works he would have produced. Um, <clears throat> whites intentionally hiding the records of uh, illegal restrictions, like the firefighter from uh, Florida pointed out. Um, sundown towns excluding blacks uh you know i think this may have been an act of racism when he you know pointed to the fact that 20 years after the 1964 civil rights act made it illegal to keep a bar owner from keeping out african americans that the city officials in new market kept blacks out from the entire town it's almost like you know, okay, well, you marched, you got your Civil Rights Act, but okay, now uh, you may be able to drink a beer with them, but you can't even come into this town. So, and then <clears throat> the way he described that they would uh, approach a black person and then uh, start telling him to uh, take a trot and start heading out of town running him out of town, basically. I thought about the Invisible Man when, you know, part of the theme, uh, the piece of paper he was carrying was telling him to keep this nigga running. So that must be uh, standard uh, procedure for racist white supremacy. And <clears throat> the enforcement of these sundown towns because 
you can say no blacks are allowed, but then they actually would patrol the train stations, the law enforcement uh, officials, police, and went so far in one town, the book was saying they, they tell the young kids from eight to uh, teenagers to go and tell the black people that they wasn't supposed to be in this town. You know, like they gonna give you a warning. And then the poor guy that got on the wrong train and ended up in uh, Comanche County, that sounded like an act of racism because out of all the places they could have put him off. Why did they put him off in Comanche County? Um, and then, on, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the inadvertent visitor walking out of town, hiking was a form of transportation and riding a train, you know, usually between 1920 and 1940, which is especially dangerous for black people. You know, you could just like the firefighter point out, Pullman were just uh, grabbed off the train and uh, just for fun and terrorized, drug around, put back on the train. Uh, that was a network of communication around, starting with the police officers, letting people know that there was a black person in the town. And uh, then crowds would come up, you know. And then the whole idea of, they, a lot of them had never, had ever seen a black person before. And so, uh, there you have it. I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Mr. Demry Four. Uh, other folks that we've missed completely, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary to share, star six one. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers. Um, thanks again, Gus, for the platform. Uh, this really a uh, good chapter, a good, good part right here. I um, The ordinance is kind of like, it just seems like, you know, another word for their own codification, things that they know orally and believe in, but they will not say outright in the open. Um and they've just gotten better at this in, in other aspects, especially with housing, with um, just the way they regulate their neighborhoods. They've just gotten better with this kind of so-called ordinances. Um, the, ne- the actual part that really threw me off was on page 221, the bottom paragraph, Errors of Inclusion and Exclusion, where he's he's the author just had me confused here like and he did a good job of this where he's like he's saying in the end i did my damnedest to find the data but all the deception and omissions all right cool deceptions omissions you're admitting that yes these people have been writing these things out of the record and he continues saying make sundown towns hard to to research Therefore, I cannot be sure of the claims made about sundown towns in this book. And I'm like, huh? Like, I, 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 so what is all this? I'm trying to figure out. So you're saying all your research is, you're not even sure about all your research, even though we have other documents and we've, 
seen other people document the same thing and to a huge degree, all of it come out to be accurate. I, I just kind of got thrown off by that. And, you know, he kind of seems like he, I don't know, I've never seen an author or heard an author write something like this within their own book, almost taking away the validity of his own work. Um, next thing was the, the actual, uh, hold on a second. There was a phrase that was used that I thought was interesting. The word actually, um, it's on page 221, where he says he sees from, and this is at the bottom, he sees from 25 to 30 boys around him talking in a subdued voices and waiting to see whether he obeys. If he hesitates, little stones begin to reach him from unseen quarters and soon persuade him to begin his hydra. And um, I was kind of thrown off by the word because I've never seen it used like this. But when I looked it up, it was Mohammed's, um, I believe, exodus out of, of, of Mecca. And then it was, you know, the second definition of it is exodus or migration. Um, but I thought it was interesting he chose to use that word specifically for for that instance. Um, and just one last thing is uh, driving while black. Um, I, I don't know. I thought he was going to touch on this way more than he did. It didn't seem like yeah, I thought I thought he was going to give a lot more detail as to a lot of the things that have gone on, but um, I've been to the Connecticut town that he's talking about, Darien, and it is very very white dominated. Like I didn't see, I maybe saw one or two black people, but they were um, coming in on the train just like I was. I don't think they lived there, um, but I, I thought that was interesting when he brought that up, and. Um, acronyms like it's amazing how many acronyms these white people have for us like it you know the earlier caller earlier mentioned this and one of them was nbd nigga on the beach after dark uh ncic new coon and county like <laughs> this stuff and they just they spend a lot of time on this they spend a lot of time on this way more than we do because we don't have this many acronyms for them at all um, and that'll be about all. And fire, um, firefighter, retired firefighter. That movie was First Blood, by the way. Uh, I just looked it up while you were speaking on it. Um, right on. Thanks. Again. Yes, sir. And uh, thanks again, Gus, for the platform. I'll mute my line. Peace. Much obliged. Much obliged. Um, <clears throat> NCIC, man. New Coon and counting. Woo! And that was the police code. I can't. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> if uh, <laughs> if we have Star Six One, oh, that was Norm Stamper. I forgot the person who mentioned breaking rank. He mentioned similar acronyms. No humans involved. I forgot the uh, initials, but that was their police code. No humans involved. So we don't need to go very fast in responding to uh, any sort of crime here. Uh, Star six one, if you have commentary, any other folks, uh, if we missed you totally, 
uh, we do have a second audio segment, so do not, you know, hang out too long. We, uh, the second audio segment is a little uh, lengthy, so we have about 20 minutes or so before we get to the next segment. Some of the notes that I took, uh, they were talking about Waverly, where the town square was donated uh, with the condition that no Negras be allowed to move there. And so they did not. And it was specifically spelled out that if any Negras ever were allowed to move there, that the square, that the land that was donated would have to be sold <laughs> like uh, dedication beyond the grave. This is like spelled out in the person's will, the racist's will. Uh, he, Mr. Lowen, he says that some white Americans told him that without a written ordinance, there is little evidence that a town kept out African-Americans. This is absurd. And in my view, this is an act of racism. Uh, and it might be uh, multiple acts of racism, white supremacy, including Mr. Lowen, for not pointing that out. Uh, it should just be stated that, you know, this is very common. White people lie. He wrote a whole book. Lies my teacher told me. White people lie a lot, especially as it relates to racism, white supremacy. So I think a lot of these people, they could just be lying. You don't even have to call them liars. The evidence suggests some of these folks, they could be lying. It would seem likely that they are lying about all of this, given all of the evidence in history that they're lying to say that, you know, if you don't have an ordinance, that this didn't happen. Now, especially given that he's talked about how a lot of this was oral. And Yeah, just continuing. Uh, let's see. I thought I was reminded when he was talking about how they did not have a written rule per se in Major League Baseball about restricting Negras that he was very specific. He said from 1890 to 1947, they didn't uh, permit Negras, but before that they did. Uh, and I was reminded that uh, I think it was retired firefighter who was saying that it's interesting that they consistently suggest that Jack or just say that Jackie Robinson was the first nigger in Major League Baseball when that's not true. Uh, they had allowed Negras before and they just stopped uh, for a period. They can do that. They don't even allow too many Negras today to play baseball. 2019. Next, uh, a listener had asked before about the number of black authors being quoted in this book. He mentioned John Baskerville, a black historian. That was the last one for me. I'm not tracking that anymore because I think he quotes a lot of black authors uh, in this text. Uh, black newspapers. He quoted the Chicago Defender repeatedly uh, this week and he has before. Pittsburgh Courier. Lots and lots of black sources. So I'm not tracking that uh, anymore. We've read enough. I'm satisfied. Um, I thought it was uh, the incident uh, where he was talking in, in Illinois, where he mentioned the black entertainer, they were going out and playing in these racist sundown towns and how the whites, there were enough of them together that they could pause their no nigger policy for the evening so they could have some nigger tunes and then they could just go back to business as usual uh, the following day. Just <laughs> I would feel some type of way about even participating in that type of the racists ruin everything. I don't know how you could be a black artist and really love music if that's what you have to deal with. Not to mention, you know, where do we where are we going to stay? What else am I going to have to tolerate uh, in between going to all these little racist towns to do this for, you know, whatever, whatever you're being compensated. But I mean, wow, what a degrading existence the system of white supremacy is. And I just pause. There's a reason John Singleton passed away at 51 another black entertainer in the system of white supremacy. Next. Uh, 
deception. Uh, he says, this is at the beginning of the errors of inclusion and exclusion chapter. He said, in the end, I did my damnedest to find the data, uh, but the but all the deception and omissions, especially in the written record, make sundown towns hard to research. The first thing he says is all the deception that should be emphasized. And in my view, he does a lot of pussyfooting. And I'm saying that that is a direct willful act of racism and not just indicting whites collectively like this is a major part of how they practice racism to lie to willfully conceal how they have terrorized black people. Make that plain, Mr. Lowen. Next. Uh, he says, I thought this was important because he says, I doubt that any notoriety from a town mistakenly receives from its listing in my book as a sundown town when it actually is not will make a significant difference to its future. And I think that's true. I don't think uh, if it was uh, any town, let's say Cicero, and they actually have black people there now. So it's not true. Maybe we were back in, you know, Dr. King's day, but it's been over 50 years, long time. Obama's been president. Hope change. We got niggers here now. Okay. Even if that wasn't the case, even if they did have all whites there and it's a racist town, I don't think there would be any sort of backlash. Like I, I cannot imagine there being a protest or we're going to get them and, you know, we're going to, you know, make life difficult for them as is the case generally for whites who practice racism. Most of the time there is no penalty. Uh, let's see. In fact, it's encouraged, expected, uh, loved the anecdote. This is how the system of white supremacy is passed on. Uh, you cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. Now, uh, this is him explaining how he got evidence that a town was a sundown town. He says he got an anecdote from a white person uh, who remembers talking to his father. Make sure I got it. He says, yep, talking to his dad when he was five years old. He says, however, I'm sure they did exist because one of my most vivid memories is of being four or five years old and driving to town with my dad. I was becoming a voracious reader. Reading is more important than watching television. And I read the sign and said, but that's wrong, daddy. They're colors. Our local word for Crayolas, not coloreds. He laughed and laughed at me, finally saying, no, baby, not coloreds. Coloreds, you know, darkies. It's just a nicer way of saying niggers. That right there, I immediately thought of Thomas in New York, who said this was over a year ago. He said, African-American, coon, colored, black person, Afro-American, anything else you want to add in there. Slave, all of that means nigger. System of racism, white supremacy. Don't lie to yourself. Uh, let's see. Next. The enforcement I thought was shadow of a doubt is used. I have my word guide now so I can read what it says about why we should not use the term shadow of a doubt. Uh, but I'll do that later time. Next. Violence. He talks about violence uh, was sometimes resorted to. That's also in the word guide. In my view, even if it's not physical violence, if they are using more what he calls sophisticated means to coerce black people to not reside or visit their town, that is a form of violence. 
violence is any form of incorrect or incorrectness uh, being done or harm being done to someone who should not be harmed. That is an act of violence. And if you are deceiving someone, manipulating someone, that is an act of violence. Uh, let's see. And I, just the whole writing of that, the segment where he says uh, the cruder methods of violence uh, then progress to the more sophisticated and subtler methods, measures that sundown suburbs have taken to remain overwhelmingly white. But we must note that even elite sundown suburbs have resorted to violence on occasion. Their entire existence is an act of violence. Terrorism. Uh, next Uh, you already talked about it, the young children uh, being the enforcement of racism, white supremacy, racist man, racist woman, racist child. And again, white people cannot be ignorant. If the eight year olds are out in the enforcement end of racism, white supremacy, are you telling me that 20 year olds, 25 year olds, 30 year olds, 35 year olds, even 15 year olds, you're telling me that they don't know about racism? You got five year olds in here telling me this is when I learned about what the Negros are. Seemed like he already knew niggers. He didn't have to tell him what that was. He already knew what niggers were. He just didn't understand the sign. Coloreds. You're telling me the five-year-olds know what a nigger is. You're telling me the eight-year-olds are responsible for keeping niggers out of town. But 15, 25, 30-year-old whites, they're ignorant. They're clueless. They're incompetent about racism, white supremacy. Come on. Next. Uh, the use of Higira. And getting the Negros to flee town, I thought was great. That is not the wording of Mr. Lowen. Uh, that is an extensive quote uh, that he's using from the source for white men only, which is from the Fairmont, West Virginia Free Press in 1905. I would love to see that uh, entire report because that is a fascinating segment. And I'm so glad that he quoted extensively because it's informative terrifying all at the same time that's the segment where he talks about these young white boys 25 to 30 of them throwing rocks and then they go back and tell their uh white pappies we ran the nigger out he ran fast and they say oh yes we had a grand old time we did the same thing in fact he says then the fathers tell how they used to do the same thing and thus the heroes of two wars spend the rest of their evening by the old campfire recounting their several campaigns. That is the same extensive quote from the Fairmont, West Virginia Free Press. If someone can get that whole 1905 report, wow, share. Uh, I was reminded again of Dr. Tommy J. Curry, the man not uh, genre race. Oh, I lost. Oh, I got it right here now. Library is back in effect. Race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. Uh, when he says, I have other stories of black men being convicted or shot on the spot for the same offense. This is how he talks about when this black male just got off the train uh, and John Grigsby, he just got off the train and was accused by a white woman at a haze of attempted criminal assault in July of 1906 on how for other black males just stepping into a town, you could be shot and killed. The man not any century. Next. The section about the porters wow that this was widespread the campaign of terrorism against black train porters reminded me of the warmth of other sun uh isabel wilkerson talked about terrorism against black porters uh, on the trains as well um 
it for a second I almost thought of the contrast with John Singleton talking about how he wanted to make sure that he portrayed black people fighting back and not just always being presented as helpless victims who didn't do anything who were cowards that sort of narrative it kind of reminded me of that because it was just black people hide these black male porters hiding 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 under the seats hiding under the seats I did have that thought for a second, but I also thought it was important if this was a widespread pattern of terrorism, because I'd never heard that before. White say, oh, no, we don't allow niggers. And in fact, we're going to be shooting at the train car and, you know, dragging porters off the train and putting a rope around. I'd never heard that. So I do think that's important. But the consistent uh, stating about black people cowering, black porters cowering on the train, did have a thought about that. Uh, he mentioned some of these trains going through Muskogee, Oklahoma. That is the hometown of none other than Neely Fuller Jr. I said, I've got to call him uh, as soon as I have a free moment and read him this passage and see, you know, did he know about this black, you know, black Korean carport is being assaulted? Did he hear about uh, this in 1923? I think this would be about six years before he was born. So I don't know, but I Muskogee, Oklahoma, that is Mr. Fuller's uh, hometown. Uh, the Driving While Black I thought was interesting because this book was published in 2005. I'm not even sure how widespread that term was 14 years ago. The cows didn't exist then. Uh, I was not studying racism, white supremacy at the time. Um, but I don't remember if that was... Certainly not the way it is today, uh, like 2014, 2015, uh, after you started having lots of these incidents, Eric Garner, Michael Brown Jr., the, uh, Black Lives Matter and all of that. I feel like it's much more prominently used now. And I feel like there would be a lot more example. I think thinking back to 2005, like, I don't I mean, if you pressed me on it, I'm not really sure I could give you an example from 2005 of a driving while black. Like, I think I could do it pretty easily now, but incidents dating 2005 other than Rodney King hmm anyway folks can comment on that uh in my book I have the ebook in the section automobile travel through sundown towns uh he's quoting from the Pittsburgh Courier uh the section when they go through Missouri or excuse me uh this is in in uh da -da 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 -da. South Carolina but no, South Carolina, the incident, August 17, 1940. Uh, he said, or in the book, it does not say damn niggers. It just has the D and then the N and the rest is omitted. He goes ahead and says it in the audiobook, which I appreciate. No sanitizing. Um, let's see. I thought it was important. He says, even a bus of, this is the anecdote he's quoted, even a busload of black choir members who saved the lives of four El Dorado Springs teenagers by pulling them from a burning car were then turned away. That is dedication to the system of racism, white supremacy, and that might be another illustration of why we should not help whites. He described this incident as shameful and I'm not sure that that is correct. Uh, I say that just because 
I've not seen evidence that whites are guilty or ashamed about these types of incidents terrify, uh, terrorizing black people. Uh, he mentioned uh, Mena, Arkansas, for this group where the white teens would go out and bump the car of black people and throw rocks at them and terrorize them. That's uh, former President William Clinton, uh, where he was alleged or accused of having all sorts of nefarious drug uh, activity down in Mena, Arkansas, former Arkansas governor, in fact. Um, Mr. Lowen, direct act of racism, white supremacy, in my view, he says, this is next page over, another way to vex African-American motorists, another way to vex, are you serious with the vocabulary that Mr. Lowen has, noted, uh, noted, celebrated white author, to vex, to make someone feel annoyed, you just talked about white people killing black people for stepping in a town, I am not vexed if somebody is shooting at me, I am terrified for my life, again, greatly minimize. I mean, vex is not a common word. This is, in my view, sometimes I feel like he is really working deliberately to not use the most accurate terms to describe what's happening. And this is a flagrant one, uh, in my view, vex African-American. Come on. Uh, I will stop there. We have a substantial uh, amount of reading for the audiobook, so if you have additional comments, you will have to hold them until we get done with the second audio segment. A little bit meaty uh, second today, but hopefully it will be lots of constructive info. I will hush, and we will get to James Lowen, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, audio segment number two, Context of White Supremacy sundown during the daytime. A few towns, including Effingham, Owasso, Buchanan County, Virginia, Burnside, Kentucky, according to oral history, Pollock, Louisiana, Arab, Alabama, Carterville, Gillespie, and East Alton, Illinois, and in some years, Syracuse, Ohio, didn't allow African Americans within their city limits even during the day. During World War II, historian Herbert Apteker saw a sign at the edge of Pollock, Nigger, stay out of Pollock. Apteker characterized Pollock as somewhat unusual for it forbade black people into the town, period. Michelle Tate, who interviewed residents of several Illinois sundown towns, reports that Gillespie, a city of about 4,000 near St. Louis, had a similar sign at the edge of town into the early 1960s. Even after the sign was removed, it was still an unwritten rule that black people entering this town wouldn't be tolerated day or night. The signs at the edge of Buchanan County in western Virginia said the usual, Nigger, don't let the sun set on you in this county, as remembered by a white man who grew up nearby. But blacks were afraid to go to Grundy, the county seat, day or night, according to an African-American who grew up not far away in West Virginia in the 1940s. He worked for an upholstery shop in Bluefield, and when we went to Grundy, I had to get out of the cab and get in the back under a tarp with the furniture until we got to the house. Then he got out and helped deliver the furniture. Then I had to get back in the back under the tarp until we got back to Taswell County, 
and then I could get back in the cab. Towns such as Martinsville and Pena that wouldn't let African Americans buy gas thus intimidated them from further shopping, even during the day. In sundown suburbs, black shoppers have long been a concern. In 1956, Dearborn resident George Washabaugh wrote his mayor to complain, More and more niggers are beginning to shop in our shopping centers, and I wish there was some way we could stop this. In 2005, shopping is still an issue in some majority white suburbs. Mall managers don't want their shopping centers to get identified as too black, which can prompt whites to shop elsewhere. Malls have died in response to the presence of young African Americans, even in solidly white middle-class areas, because white shoppers flee black youth. Also, a mall can easily lose its cachet. Then cutting-edge retailers move to trendier locations. Suburban city officials also know that shopping malls often desegregate first, leading to white uneasiness that can fuel white residential flight. Today, some suburbs do what they can to discourage African Americans from visiting their malls persuading public transportation agencies not to service the malls with bus routes from black neighborhoods, surveilling African-American shoppers and making them uneasy, and having police follow black motorists. Many towns that might tolerate an occasional African-American during the day, shopping or buying gas, drew the line at full-time workers. This was especially true if they had to stay the night, even if it was known to be for a short period of time. A white man named J.J. Wallace invited a black carpenter into Norman, Oklahoma in 1898 to do construction work. The mayor and other whites beat up Wallace because of it and ran the African-American out of town. Wallace sued the government arguing lack of protection, but the court concluded that neither it nor the state could be expected to do anything about local sentiment, even though the mayor helped lead the attack. Unfortunately, this case set an important precedent that shielded sundown town governments from legal consequences when they failed to stop whites who attacked African-American workers and their white employers according to law professor Al Brophy. The following clipping shows an example of the kind of terror that African-American workers often encountered in sundown towns. It's from Rogers, Arkansas, probably between 1910 and 1920. A Bentonville contractor was building one of the first brick business houses here, and he brought with him a colored man to carry the mortar hod figuring that no white man would want to do such heavy menial labor. A group of young men were gathered in the blue saloon when the Negro entered, probably looking for his employer. The group seized the Negro and began telling what they were going to do with him. A well had been started at the rear of a business house, but after going down some feet, the work was halted and the hole covered with planks. 
It was suggested they dropped the Negro in the old well after they had hanged him. But others objected on the ground that the odor from the ones already planted there was becoming objectionable to the neighborhood. As some of the men pulled aside the planks to investigate, the ones holding the trembling Negro loosened their grip on the victim. It was the chance for escape he'd been seeking, and in a matter of seconds he was just a blur on the horizon, and he never did return to Rogers. It was just another of the incidents that gave all colored people good excuses for not stopping here. The incident was meant to be funny, for had the men been serious, they could easily have apprehended the runaway via auto or horse. Yet the prank wasn't entirely in jest, for it accomplished the disemployment of the man, surely one of its aims. An attorney not only is a hired worker, but is necessary for court to proceed. Nevertheless, in Platte City, Missouri, north of Kansas City, a black attorney defending two clients was met at the front door of the courthouse by a mob of white men in December 1921, according to a report in the Chicago Defender. The leader of the mob had a handkerchief bound around his mouth. Pointing an automatic revolver at W.F. Miles's head, he ordered him to turn around and leave town. Miles, his life in danger, did as he was bid. The sheriff and a deputy overtook him and brought him back to the court. The attorney then explained to the judge that he was being threatened in connection with the defense of the McDaniels and asked the court that note of the matter be made in the court record. The judge upbraided him for making any such charge before the jury. Following this, the court admonished Miles to have his clients change their pleas from not guilty to guilty. Miles did so, and they were immediately sentenced to three years in the penitentiary. Miles persuaded the sheriff to protect him until he should reach Kansas City. As the attorney's saga implies, even when African Americans were admitted, their daytime position in many sundown towns could be quite tenuous. In 1923, Benton, Illinois, flirted with barring African Americans during the day. Whites threw a threatening note into the Franklin Hotel, giving the colored help warning to leave town within a certain length of time, according to the Benton Republican. The darkies left at once, with the result that the hotel was helpless, and Mr. Ross was forced to close down his dining rooms Monday. The report went on to note, Benton has never been very friendly to colored people making their homes here, but have never been partial before as to where they would permit them to work and where they would not be permitted to work. Apparently, the movement didn't become general, however, and African Americans were able to continue working elsewhere in Benton so long as they did not stay after dark. During the Depression, the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, set up work camps in various locales to house formerly unemployed young men who worked on projects to better the community, 
such as sewage systems, state parks, and soil erosion barriers. The projects benefited the community, but sundown towns nevertheless often didn't want them if it meant putting up with African-American workers. In Richmond, California, just north of Berkeley, whites objected continuously to an interracial CCC camp in 1935. Finally, the company was replaced with one that was all white. Yet Richmond wasn't even all white, although most of its 270 African Americans in 1940 had to live in North Richmond, an unincorporated area outside the Richmond city limits. In Burbank, a suburb of Los Angeles, the CCC tried to locate an African American company in Griffith Park, but park commissioners refused to let them citing an old ordinance of the cities of Burbank and Glendale, which prohibited Negroes from remaining inside municipal limits after sundown. Residents of Mount Vernon, a sundown town in southwestern Missouri, threatened bloodshed to keep out a proposed black CCC camp. Wyandotte, Michigan, went a step beyond Mount Vernon, it wouldn't accept African-American workers even during the daytime, commuting from Detroit. In December 1935, 55 Works Progress Administration men were sent to Wyandotte to build new sewers. Forty were African-American. According to the Wyandotte Daily News, F. W. Little, director of the work projects in this city, refused to allow the men to go to work on projects and so informed the director in Detroit. He stated, as his reason for refusing to allow the men to work, the feeling in Wyandotte on the part of many against Negroes. All projects were halted in the city for today. The city's other newspaper, The Herald, claimed that Little's action was based more on a desire to protect the colored workers than any racial prejudice. Wyandotte has never been a pleasant place for Negroes. In years gone by, colored people who tried to effect a residence here were either compelled or induced to leave town. During World War II, the War Department grew concerned because a huge defense contractor in East Alton couldn't hire African Americans. Truman K. Gibson, Jr., an aide to the Secretary of War, reported, East Alton doesn't allow any Negroes to come into town. They can't ride on the public transportation system. The mayor has said that if they come in, he'll not be responsible for their protection. No Negroes live or work in East Alton. I'm not entirely unacquainted with the attitude of many downstate cities toward Negroes. Even after World War II, many sundown towns and counties continued to exclude black workers. In Grundy County, Tennessee, Dr. Oscar Clements hired four African-American bricklayers from Chattanooga. Whites drove them off, saying, we won't even allow Negroes to come into Grundy County, much less work here. A better outcome occurred in Aurora, Indiana, near Cincinnati on the Ohio River. A contractor brought in four African-American workers, 
whereupon a crowd attacked them and tried to drive them away, according to historian Emma Lou Thornborough, while a citizens' committee warned the employer to get rid of them. This he refused to do, and the Negroes finished the job for which they were employed, but under police protection. Unfortunately, this set no precedent. Aurora displayed a sundown sign as recently as the 1960s, and a student at nearby Northern Kentucky University reported that Aurora was still a sundown town as of November 2002. Also, after World War II, residents of Greenbelt, Maryland, a sundown suburb outside Washington, built by the FDR administration during the Depression, shunned African Americans doing daytime janitorial work, denying them even customary salutations. Some residents tried to keep the local store from selling them food for lunch, but the Greenbelt Council dismissed the objections. Whites in Neoga, in central Illinois, tried to keep out black workers even later. Michelle Tate interviewed an elderly African-American couple in Mattoon, Illinois. The husband had worked on railroad tracks in various towns in central Illinois. The woman repeatedly spoke of her fear when he was working in Neoga. The railroad crew traveled places on an old school bus. This is where the men slept at night when they'd finished working for the day. He talked of people meeting the bus on the way into Neoga and yelling to keep the niggers out of their town. He even stated that one time, when they were working in Neoga, a group of white men from Neoga came to Mattoon and broke out all the windows in the bus and tore up the inside, including leaving feces inside. Thus residents expressed their outrage that blacks would be working in Neoga day or night. Night Work in Sundown Town Night work has long posed special problems for African Americans in sundown towns. A former worker at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland wrote, Most think that Ashland was such a town, and noted that theater almost always involves night work. In the 1950s, the Shakespeare Festival hired their first black actress, and she had to be escorted as she traveled to and from the theater for safety. Commonwealth Edison, in the sundown town of Pekin, Illinois, was employing African Americans by the mid-1980s, but these workers drew unwanted police attention at least until the mid-1990s, according to an African American in nearby Peoria. Those who worked the third shift Police would follow you in and follow you out until they got a sense of where you were going. Similar harassment was visited upon African Americans working the third shift in a huge Ford plant in Dearborn. Two librarians in Oak Lawn, a sundown suburb southwest of Chicago, told me proudly in 1997, we had a black woman working here in the library for almost two years, on the front desk, and no one was ever prejudiced to her. 
but they agreed it wasn't prudent for her to work the evening shift. Similarly, an African-American college student from the Cleveland area said, My mom worked in Parma, and they never encouraged her to stay late to get overtime. It was always, Why don't you come in early? They didn't want her in Parma after dark. Door-to-door -door selling is especially problematic. An African-American woman hired to sell vacuum cleaners door-to-door -door in Muhammad, Illinois, a sundown town just west of Champaign-Urbana, told me, The company warned me not to be there after dark. Many African-Americans would never consider taking jobs requiring them to be outdoors alone in sundown towns, even in daylight. Economic and Social Ostracism Ford, the Oak Lawn Library, and Commonwealth Edison were demonstrating some boldness merely by hiring African Americans to work in sundown towns. After all, one way to keep out African Americans is to refuse to employ them. Independent sundown towns have often followed that route. Nick Kahn hired an African-American to work at his motel in Paragould in northeast Arkansas in 1982. He was warned not to do it, but defied the warning. The 2000 census showed 31 African-Americans in Paragould among more than 22,000 people. But white residents I spoke with in 2002 knew of no independent black household. I asked Khan why so few black adults lived in Paragould. They don't get jobs, was his reply. Himself a Pakistani-American, he added, Nobody would hire us. We're only here because we own the property. I told Khan about the remarks of a woman who went to her high school reunion at Paragould High School in 1997 after living out of state for four decades. She saw that the town was still all white in 1997, as it had been forty years before, and asked how this could be. Oh, we have a committee that takes care of that, she was told. They don't need a committee, Khan replied. If black people come in, they'll find that they're not welcome here. No one will hire them. When employers defy community sentiment and do hire African Americans, they then face a form of secondary boycott. During the summer of 1982, for example, the Shell Station in Goshen, Indiana, hired a young black woman the adopted daughter of a white Goshen couple. Within a month, business dropped off so precipitously that she had to be let go. Even owning the property may not suffice. In the 1970s, a black couple bought a gas station in Breeze, a sundown town in southwestern Illinois. I never heard of anyone harassing or threatening them. People just didn't buy gas there explained Stephen Crow, a 1976 graduate of Breeze High School. So, of course, they had to leave. Nick Kahn survived in Paragould only because his clientele came from outside the town. 
In Medford, a sundown town in southwestern Oregon, whites used another ploy, unwillingness to sell. In 1963, they refused to let an African-American family buy groceries, according to former Medford resident Elise Swanson. They moved out of the valley in about six months. Diana McCarty told of an incident she saw herself when she was in seventh grade in Arcola, a central Illinois town of 2,700 in 1978. There'd been talk in town that a new family was moving in. They had two small kids. This news excited me, new babysitting opportunities, and the husband worked in Mattoon, she wrote. Later in the week, I was in the school office when I saw a black woman at the secretary's desk. She looked angry. I overheard that her children could not get registered for school until all their records got transferred. I also overheard lots of conversation regarding not knowing what happened to the records and blaming the mail service, etc. It didn't dawn on me what was happening until a few days later after school at my grandfather's shop, which was located across the side alley from the Byright grocery store, the same woman I'd seen in the office at school pulled up to the Byright and got out of her car with her two kids. She went to the front door, and there was a closed sign on it, and the doors were locked. She looked around, as I did, because the parking lot was full. People inside looked to be shopping. I met her gaze, and in a brief instant I had an epiphany. The light bulb was so bright I thought I was blinded. I was so angry. I took her across the alley and she met my grandpa. They talked in hushed tones while I played with the kids. I overheard them talking about where she could get some things. He offered her gas. He had his own above-ground tank and he gave her the names and locations of some Amish friends of his that could supply her with milk, eggs, meat, etc. They were there one day, and a couple of weeks later they were gone. I don't blame them for leaving in the middle of the night. Business slowed at my grandfather's shop for a while, but it picked back up with time. He was the only auto body shop in town. It was a good thing her grandfather's position was secure, because whites who befriended black newcomers often found themselves ostracized socially and economically. In her remarkable memoir, The Education of a Wasp, Lois Mark Stalvey tells how her white neighbors in suburban Omaha in the early 1960s broke off friendships with her and ultimately got her husband fired simply because she tried to help a black couple buy a home in their all-white neighborhood. They moved to Philadelphia. Many white liberals in sundown towns and suburbs worry about social ostracism, so their anti-racism never gets voiced beyond the confines of home. Here's an example from Coleman, a sundown town in northern Alabama. The first time I remember seeing a Confederate flag flying on a car in Birmingham, I asked what it was, and Mother told it was waved by troublemakers who believed in being hateful to colored people. 
wrote a Colman native about her childhood. During the Civil War centennial celebrations, when my friend's parents dressed up and went to balls, my parents informed us that the Southern side had nothing to be proud of. In 1963, Mother insisted that we watch the March on Washington on television and kept saying, This is history. This is history. At the same time, my parents made it clear that my sister and I were not to repeat their most liberal sentiments to just anyone. There are some things we just don't talk about outside the home. Virginia Cowan writes of living with her mother-in-law for three months in Barnsdall, Oklahoma, in 1952. On the outskirts of town, I saw a big white sign with black letters that said, Nigger, don't let the sun set on your black ass in this town. I couldn't believe it. I stayed in Barnsdall three months. I never saw a black, ever. When they were talked about, it was always those niggers or those uppity niggers. I cringed every time I heard that word. If someone I knew used it, I just walked away. Mom had asked me, please, not to make waves. She had to live there after I left, so I kept my mouth shut. Many residents of sundown towns expressed displeasure with their town's anti-black policies when they talked with me. Their disapproval seemed sincere, but they never mentioned voicing such sentiments to their fellow townspeople. They seem to feel they've performed as citizens if they disapprove privately, especially if they move away. One result is that everyone thinks the silent majority in their town favors continued exclusion, since no one speaks up. Edmund Burke famously said, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Even today, especially in sundown suburbs, many whites are still afraid of being put down by other whites as nigger lovers, though elite suburbanites may not use the term itself. So their anti-racist impulses get immobilized. They do nothing. Their quiescence helps explain why sundown towns and suburbs usually stay all white for decades. Harassing Invited Guests Even invited visitors, musicians, athletic teams, or house guests of private citizens have been attacked or threatened in sundown towns. African-American musicians have often run afoul of sundown rules, partly because their job usually entails working after dark. When students at the University of Oklahoma invited a black band to play for a dance in 1922, residents of Norman left no doubt that the city's sundown rule applied on campus as well. Here's the account in an African-American newspaper. A gang of ruffians have disgraced this city again in an attempt to maintain the vicious reputation of the city not to let Negroes stay in the municipality after sundown. For many years, Norman has had signs and inscriptions stuck around in prominent places which read, Nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in this burg. Saturday night, 
when Singy Smith's orchestra of Fort Worth, Texas, attempted to play in the dance hall, where they were employed by the students of the university, a mob of outlaws stormed the hall and practically wrecked it. A mob of approximately 500 surrounded the dance hall soon after the dance started and began to throw bricks. They were armed with clubs, guns, and some carried ropes. There was talk of lynching the Negroes and it was said that several automobile loads of persons went to the city park to prepare for the hanging, telling the rest to bring the niggers. Sheriff W. H. Nublock quickly gathered in all available deputies and deputized nearly 100 students of the U of Oklahoma in order to protect the musician. The orchestra was taken to the interurban station and sent to Oklahoma City when the mob grew in strength and it became evident that there would soon be trouble. Fights occurred between the mob and students who formed a bodyguard while the Negroes were escorted to the station. Negroes are occasionally seen on the streets of Norman in the daytime, but the rule that they leave at night is strictly enforced. Several other Oklahoma towns have similar customs. Several prominent businessmen were seen in the mob here Saturday night. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. tells of an incident in about 1960 similar, in a way, to the prank in Rogers, Arkansas. In Oakland, county seat of Garrett, the county at the western tip of Maryland, whites threatened an African-American jazz man, Les Clifford. Mr. Les was up Oakland, a town full of crackers and rednecks, if there ever was one located on Deep Creek Lake, twenty-five or so miles from Piedmont. They hated niggers up Oakland. Niggers read and run, Daddy claimed a sign there said, and if you can't read, run anyway. Anyway, Mr. Les was up at the barn, a redneck hangout, flirting with all the white women, gyrating and spinning those sinuous tones, making that saxophone into a snake a long, shiny, golden snake. A keg of beer apiece for these rednecks and a couple of hours of Les's snake working on their minds and their girlfriend's imaginations was all it had taken. Let's lynch that nigger, someone finally shouted. And so they did, or tried to at least. Somebody called the state cops and they busted down the door just about the time they were going to kick the table out from under Mr. Les and leave him dangling from the big central rafter. They would have given his horn back afterward, they said. To his family, they said. As in Rogers, the men may not really have planned to kill Clifford. Gates's father, Henry Louis Gates, Sr., thought they were just scaring him. But as in Rogers, the incident wasn't entirely in jest. According to Gates Sr., Clifford had been dating a white woman. That's what it was all about. The mock hanging was meant to frighten Clifford from the community to stop the relationship. Even when audiences loved their performances, Musicians and athletes faced the problem of where to spend the night. This difficulty repeatedly beset barnstorming black baseball teams and the two famous black basketball teams, the Harlem Globetrotters and the Harlem Magicians.
whenever they played in sundown towns. The town baseball team of El Dorado Springs, a sundown town in western Missouri, invited a black Kansas City team to play them, but the guests were then denied food and lodging. One man made an accommodation. Dr. L. T. Dunaway locked the team in his second-floor office, and some citizens took food to them, according to local historian Gene Swaim. African-American workers paving U.S. 54 through El Dorado Springs in the 1940s also had to spend their nights locked in that office. Swaim doesn't say whether they were locked in to prevent them from being at large in the town after sundown or to preclude violence against them by local white residents for that offense. Robinson is a small city in southeast Illinois whose main claim to fame is the invention of the Heath Bar. Mary Jo Hubbard, who grew up in Robinson in the 1950s and 60s, remembers an incident that took place in the early to mid-sixties that involved a visiting high school basketball team that wasn't allowed to stay in the hotel and were put up in the local jail overnight while the basketball tournament was going on. I remember my parents being horrified at the time that children spent the night in the jail. But it did happen. That should tell you something about the town. Even the great contralto Marion Anderson repeatedly had trouble finding a place to sleep. When she sang at Princeton University in 1937, Princeton's only hotel refused her, as noted in the previous chapter, so Albert Einstein invited her to stay with him. The two remained friends for life according to a 2002 exhibit on Einstein at the American Museum of Natural History. In February 1958, Anderson had the same problem in Goshen, Indiana, when she sang at Goshen College, and had to stay the night in Elkhart, ten miles away, because the Goshen Hotel wouldn't allow a black person to stay there. When Anderson sang in Appleton, Wisconsin, she had to sleep in Nina or Menasha. Actually, hotels in sundown towns like Goshen and Appleton didn't differ from hotels in non-sundown towns like Princeton. Between 1890 and about 1960, most hotels in America wouldn't let African Americans stay the night. But sundown towns posed additional complications. They had, of course, no African-American hotels or other facilities. Hence, no hotel would have housed Marion Anderson or any other African-American. And because there were no African-American residents, no black private homes existed to house stranded travelers in an emergency. Finally, Goshen and Appleton wouldn't allow an African-American to spend the night. That's the difference between Princeton and Goshen. Goshen was a sundown town, while Princeton was not. Hence, no Einstein stepped forward in Goshen or Appleton. 
A professor who might volunteer to host Anderson in Goshen would endanger the singer as well as his or her own family. Scottsdale, Arizona, illustrated the difference in 1959. Twelve years after Jackie Robinson integrated the major leagues, the Boston Red Sox recruited their first African-American player. They were the last team to do so. When Pumpsy Green joined the team for spring training camp in Scottsdale that spring, he wasn't housed in the hotel with the rest of the team, nor anywhere else in Scottsdale. The Red Sox claimed all the hotels were full with tourists, so there was no room for one more player, who just happened to be green. The real reason was Scottsdale. Blacks couldn't live there after dark, and so he was sent seventeen miles away to live in Phoenix, according to Howard Bryant, author of Shut Out, A Story of Race and Baseball in Boston. When residents of sundown towns did step forward to house African-American visitors, they often found the experience unnerving. In 1969, a choir from Southern Baptist College performed in Harrison, Arkansas. It had a black member, according to the wife of a couple I spoke with in Harrison in 2002. We put her up, but we worried lest our house get blown up. Gray Gundaker, who now teaches American studies at William and Mary, went to junior high school in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, a sundown town on Lake Michigan, between 1962 and 1964. He remembers one occasion when the policy was violated at a stable where he worked after school. When an African-American man who drove a horse van came through town and needed a place to stay, the owner of the stable, Larry Bolin, put him up. Larry told us kids not to tell, that it would be very dangerous for his friend if he were caught. Left unsaid, it would also be dangerous for Bolin and his family. White residents tried to avoid triggering a town's sundown sensibility. In 1982, a young woman was planning her wedding in Pinckneyville, Illinois, where she'd grown up, a sundown town sixty miles southeast of St. Louis. I asked a dear college friend, who was also a longtime friend of my husband's, to be an usher. When going over the lists with my mother, she said, Who's this Roy? The bride-to-be reminded her mother of a photo of her and Roy, who was African-American. She turned six shades of white and said, You don't actually think he'll come, do you? I dug in my heels and swore that if he wasn't welcomed, I'd elope. I did give in somewhat, though. I agreed to move my 6.30 wedding to 6 p.m. so there'd be plenty of daylight while he was in town. Occasional acts of violence greeted visitors and hosts in these situations, showing that Boland's fear and Schwartz's rescheduling were justified. In September 1946, for example, 
a white army officer allowed a black army officer to stay overnight in his home in West Lawn in southwest Chicago, according to reporter Steve Bogira. The two had served together in the war, and the black officer was visiting from out of town. Word got out in the neighborhood, and soon a mob was stoning the home, smashing windows and yelling, Lynch the nigger lover! Chicago was not a sundown town, of course, but West Lawn was a sundown neighborhood. Context of white supremacy. That is the end of the second audio segment. We'll pick up there next Thursday, same time. Uh, if you would like to participate, questions or comments, the number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We have about 30 minutes. Uh, folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have comments you would like to share, thoughts, questions, uh, if we did not hear from you at all, you should get your hand up immediately so we can make sure uh, that we get, uh, we get your commentary included. Please don't wait until the last minute. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, Mr. Demery Four, uh, caller, uh, caller in Florida, uh, and the caller at... 9029, you're all with us. I'll look for other hands as we proceed. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter, yes, sir. Yes. Uh, just wanted to say right quick, Mr. Singleton, uh, one thing that uh, I noticed that may be slightly different uh as far as his input was he seemed to be more scientific in implanting into his uh, movies uh, the global system of racism by supremacy. He, in other words, it, it, it appeared that he wanted to utilize his movies for more than just entertainment. Just from the advent of, of getting in contact with Dr. Welsing, uh, uh, was significant. And uh, the, the famous clip in the movie that he did uh, about uh, this uh, white college where uh, Mr. Jackson made the comment that we're behind enemy lines when the black males were bragging about some fight that they won, you know, was significant. And, and uh, if you were, I was just thinking, if you were able to, able to get him to interview him, that would have been a, and I'm going to use your word, that would have been a hoot to be able to do that uh, uh, during the time when he was alive. Uh, but uh, I, I deeply appreciate his input. Uh, going, moving on with the, uh, the reading. Uh, I, during the second reading, I, I noticed that, you know, during some of the times where the uh, writer was talking about, the first of all, the entire, the entire, this, the entire quote-unquote country was on the military mode in and around the 1930s uh, until the mid-1940s with quote-unquote World War II. And that made it even more easier uh, because at that time they were subjugating non-white people who were called Japanese, who were quote-unquote citizens of this 
uh, area, but yet uh, they basically uh, put them into uh, concentration camps, uh, that sort of thing during that time uh, also. And in turn, uh, with uh, the idea, uh, the, the, the talk of what was going on in Washington at the time with monies to where people were repairing streets and, and uh, uh, plants, war plants and that sort of thing, uh, the way to keep black people from being employed was to uh, was to create these and enforce these uh, sundown. Charlie Horse. Oh, oh. Self care. If I have a few of those myself. Ooh, boy. <laughs> Drink more water. Drink more water. Drink more water. Yeah, yeah. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah. They they were able to uh, reduce the numbers of black people becoming uh, employed. That actually was coming from the quote unquote southern states to be employed, but it was hard to find places to stay <laughs> because of that. And you know, white people, you know, uh, actually organizing with one another directly and indirectly. Uh, you know, with these shenanigans that they do. Uh, one would think that, well, okay, if I just buy me a business, then I can kind of like uh, over overcome uh, uh, this problem. And then that wouldn't work because white people almost from a natural standpoint, according to the last reading, would just wouldn't, wouldn't uh, support your business. You know, I mean, it'd be, it'd be something that they actually would need and they refuse to go into your business as far as that's concerned. Uh, Malcolm X has said that in some of his speeches. Uh, uh, he mentioned about that in one of his famous speeches. I don't know if it was Ballot to the Bullet, Ballot or Bullet or something. I, I just get a uh, message to the grassroots, one of the two, where he mentioned about that. Uh, I have here uh, failure to enroll children into local public schools. That was the that was one of the easiest means to maintain to maintain a quote unquote sundown town because you know most quote unquote care groups that people call families are going to have children and they you know need to have them in schools and that was one of the main reasons why we would travel around this part of the world to find some kind of decent schooling for our children and in turn you go right there to a closed door. No, you can't roll that little nigger in here, you know. And so, you know, you just have to keep moving on. Uh, uh, so I have your so-called uh, counter-racist wife. Oh, there they go again. Counter-racist wife, you know, little cowardly, you know, they'd sit in, in their house and talk about, oh, that's so bad what they do to those diggers and whatnot. And it'll stay right in there. It'll stay right in that inside that house uh, because they wouldn't take it out because if, I heard you say, and a lot of other people say, including myself, is that if you come out there with that kind of talk, just the talk, you would get you would get uh, contacted by white people who mean business, and you would suffer something uh, demonstrative as a white person if you if you uh, went against the white code. Uh, uh, absolutely nothing. Yeah, basically, I was stating that they were absolutely 
totally ineffective. And it's still that way today. Basically, it's, it's the same, it's the same uh, correlation between uh, whites who, who are quite comfortable at practicing the system of racism, white supremacy, and these so-called white people who are anti-racist. This, the relationship is still the same. Marion Anderson, one of the greatest uh, entertainers that ever lived uh, for singing, it doesn't matter of, of a black person's status. And I would say it's, it's still that way today, uh, uh, you know, having trouble with finding places to stay in that case, in her case, back during that time. Even during that time in the 1960s, when a uh, quote unquote Clashes Clay became heavyweight champion of the world, I'm talking about down here where I'm sitting at right now. Uh, he, after he became the heavyweight champion of the world, he couldn't stay in Miami Beach. That's where the fight was, uh, uh, took place at. Uh, in Miami Beach at the Miami Beach Convention Center. And he couldn't stay in there. He couldn't stay in a hotel or anything like that to celebrate. He basically had to go uh, back on the quote-unquote mainland in the area where blacks were allowed to stay. At that time, uh, and I don't even think this particular hotel was black-owned. I think it was owned by white people who called themselves Jews. I could be wrong. I'm not. It's called the Hampton House. Uh, basically, uh, through, I don't know if it's city or county money, it's been restored uh, as a uh, museum, although uh, it wouldn't be wise to be hanging around that place at night, you know, right now. Uh, uh, but nevertheless, that was an area where uh, you named a black person during the, the, the 50s and the 60s, uh, that person had stayed uh, at that particular hotel. Uh, put on events at that hotel, entertainment at that hotel, and that's where he stayed along with Jim Brown uh, uh, and Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X brought his family there twice uh, during that particular point in time. And uh, that's it. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you have commentary? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, looking back, uh, starting with uh, the beginning where we left off at the beginning of the second segment on page 237, I thought it was interesting at the bottom where they were speaking in regards to the suburbs of today, where the malls are actually trying to still keep out African-Americans from visiting the malls. So they pers- they've been persuading public transportation agencies not to service the malls with bus routes for black neighborhoods. Um, I just think that's, wow. I mean, um, literally, uh, it, it's, it, it's indicative of, of pretty much this, this whole chapter is, is, is filled with this, where even for their own benefit, you know, as a retired firefighter pointed out, even for their own benefit, they are willing to uh, to sacrifice quite a bit. And um, the the whites that don't follow protocol um, is showed on the next page on 238 at the top. Um, a white man named J.J. Walls invited a black carpenter into Norman, Oklahoma, in 1898 to do construction work. The mayor, the mayor, and other whites beat up Wallace because of it and ran the African-American 
out of town. Wallace sued the government, arguing lack of protection, but the court concluded that neither it nor the state could be expected to do anything about local sentiment, even though the mayor helped lead the attack. Like, <laughs> oh man, I mean, you, you can't you can't get any more codified than that. The mayor is literally letting you know that this does not go down in his district. Um, and the same thing on page 239. It's just full of this, actually, where uh, that civilian conservation corps um, during the Great Depression and these these African-Americans were going to come there. They were going to help the community build up the sewage system. They would rather their sewage system be broken down than have African-Americans working there. Like, that's just, man, these people. Um, going on next, uh, fast forward a couple more pages. I thought this was interesting. Um, as you said earlier, he cites definitely a lot of um, uh, a lot of black papers, a lot of a lot of black people in general. And on 246, Henry Louis Gates uh, Jr. Um, in regards to uh, Mr. Less, uh, and I thought the, the this was an interesting passage in the middle of the page. Anyway, Mr. Less was up to the barn, was up at the barn, a redneck hangout, flirting with all the white women, gyrating and spinning those uh, sinus, sinuses, tones, making that saxophone into a snake, a long, shiny, golden snake. A keg of beer and a piece of rednecks um, in a couple of hours less, snake less a snake working their, on their minds and their girlfriends' imaginations was all it had taken. Um, just that metaphor alone, I'm not sure where he was going with the golden snake. I have an idea, but I only want to put that in the air. Um, and then at the bottom, stating that they were not trying to actually kill him. They were going to do a mock hanging. I've never heard of a mock hanging. I've just heard of hangings so i don't know where they why this i don't even know why that passage is even brought up there you should just tell the truth that they stated they were going to do a mock hanging but the reality is they got caught and henceforth they backed away and didn't hang him that's pretty much what happened there i don't know about any mock hanging um and the last one is on page 248 uh, at the bottom where uh the bride and the mother said uh, who is this Roy? And the bride-to-be remain, reminded her mother of a photo with her and Roy, who was African-American. And uh, this passage, uh, metaphor right here, she turned six shades of white <laughs> and said, you don't actually think he'll come, do, do you? Uh, I just thought that was interesting. But um, this passage is just a lot of um, reminder to white people, just basically letting you know that if they get out of code, they will get checked. And it says a lot in regards to the numbers of whites that are actually willing to physically get involved and defend their racism, white supremacy to the death, as opposed to those that would go against it. Henceforth showing that the numbers are all in the favor of the racist white supremacist. You don't even need to do any kind of statistics or measuring with this. You could just tell by every single story 
that he's mentioning because all these whites are fearful for their lives. Even the ones that are quote unquote powerful in their um, districts. Um, but anyway, that's all I have for, for now. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. I think we are attempting to be universal man, universal woman uh, about, you know, what was happening with that saxophone metaphor indeed reminded me of uh i think john singleton might have something to do with the film black snake moan i'm gonna have to check the credits and report back are there other folks who have commentary they wanted to share he he did have something to do with it i think he directed that or or he might have produced it i'm not sure but i know he's definitely did definitely Mm. did other folks who have uh, commentary? Yes, may I be heard? Mr. Demry Four. Yes, okay. Uh, <clears throat> on page uh, 238, um, <clears throat> excuse me, was talking about a uh, contractor that had brought a black worker in with him, it said uh, that the contract came from Bentonville, uh, Arkansas, and figuring that no white man wanted to do um, the menial heavy labor, he brought a black man with him. And this black man was terrorized, they grabbed him and going to throw him down a well. Um, But, you know, the way that it was written, it said as soon as the the guys that was holding him loosened their grip on the victim, he was just a blur in the horizon. Well, first he was a trembling Negro and They loosened the grip on him, and he was a blur in the horizon. You know, that race count has been given probably thousands of times. And then, just like the last caller was saying, you know, Mark lynchings, you know, this was done, according to the book, I guess, as a prank. and But it really wasn't a prank because it accomplished what they wanted to do, and that was to uh, get the black man out of the particular area. And then it was a mention of Henry Louis Gates' father. You know, I thought it was interesting. It sounded as if, I may be mistaken, that he was making excuses for white white people's actions. Uh, <clears throat> and... Uh, you know, Henry Louis Gates, I guess that would be a cowbell, you know, uh, seemed to be given, uh, you know, it, I, well, I don't want to get into putting him down, but uh, uh, he himself had been a victim of um, uh, racism when uh, they arrested him at his own home, trying to enter his own home. <clears throat> and there's a mention of Bluefield, West Virginia, where um, I guess 
uh, well, blacks, I know blacks were allowed to live there because I know a gentleman that's in his 80s. He's a former um, officer in the Army, and uh, I can still, you know, verify some of this with him, maybe. The town was supposed to be close by Bluefield, Grundy, and they talked about how it was, you couldn't even, blacks couldn't even go there during the daytime daytime or night so if he was if he's in his 80s now that means that he may have witnessed that or heard of it and i'll make sure that i ask him about that um <clears throat> then the night work in the sundown towns i mean it was seen that uh, a person a black person unless they were unaware they may need the overtime but then why risk your life um making a few nickels you know staying after dark it said that the that the person that hired the uh, the actress um would escort them you know for their own safety so I don't know. It just seems to me that uh, they wouldn't have to tell me when to come. As a matter of fact, uh, I'd probably be making plans to uh, uh, relocate. <clears throat> Same thing with the people working the third shift in the uh, Ford plant in Dearborn. You know, you're just trying to make a decent living, and uh, you could lose your life, you know, with these terrorists. Uh, racist terrorists. Um, I think that about does it for me. I'll uh, mute my line, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, uh, Mr. Demry Four. Uh, see if I can share my commentary quickly in the time that we have left. I did want to add that section about Driving Wild Black. This book was published in 2005. I've said for years, <laughs> white lies. White people saying, what do you mean? Police are using their nigger knockers and, and bashing black? What do you know? I've just never heard. A lot of white people have read uh, this book. And this is 2005. He has a whole chapter on this for now. you telling me that you're ignorant. And then I weave right into the next note, Sundown during the daytime, he says, residents of sundown suburbs expect and applaud police harassment of outsiders, niggers, oh, flagrant. What do you mean you're ignorant? Expect and applaud. The next one, uh, where the mayor, or, or yeah, this is, I love this one when people say, many victims, of course, that it's not about racism. It's about money. When he says in 1956, Dearborn resident George Washburn wrote to uh, wrote his mayor to complain more and more niggers are beginning to shop in our shopping centers. And I wish there was some way we could stop this. And to know this continues to be a pest. How do we keep the niggers out of here? They did that in Atlanta. They purposely have bad public transportation because they don't want the niggers to have easy access to other white parts of the city. This is in the planning of Atlanta's public transportation and has been written about for decades. Uh, and that's not even a sundown town. Uh, 
the may I think uh, we had one of our listeners point out the mayor participating in one of these uh, incidents of white terrorism, state sanctioned white terrorism, which would be the same thing with the police harassment. Uh, let's see the anecdote where they were talking about they were going to uh, kill this black entertainer. This is in Rogers, Arkansas. This is one of the mock lynchings. It's supposed to be a prank. And he says, it was suggested they drop the Negro in the old well after they hanged him, but others objected on the ground that the odor from the ones already planted there was becoming objectionable to the neighborhood. The ease of mentioning how frequent we kill Negroes. Uh, and that this was meant to be a long racist joke. This was supposed to be funny. Ha ha. Uh, let's see. The whites rallied to keep white workers from even, uh, excuse me, whites rallied to keep black workers from being a, even being able to purchase a lunch for themselves when they were working uh, to build infrastructure in their towns. Uh, they gave another incident. Uh, Neoga, I'm glad I've not heard of a lot of these uh, places in Illinois, N-E-O-G-A. The railroad crew traveled on places on an old school bus. He talked of meeting people on the bus on the way to Neoga and yelling to keep the niggas out of their town. He even stated that one time when they were working in Neoga, a group of white men from Neoga came to Mattoon and broke out all the windows in the bus and tore up the inside, including leaving feces inside. Wellsing moment, I thought. Might, might even be some uh, homoeroticism there. Um, the incident, yeah, <laughs> Mr. Fuller, if you are white, Five, even it seems from what we got from this book, you cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. Uh, he gives the anecdote where this white uh, girl remembers her grandfather helping a black family that moved into town <clears throat> and they were not they couldn't get groceries, couldn't get their children enrolled in school and all this. And she figures it out. Her grandfather helps them and the whites retaliate by not patronizing his business as much for a while. You can't be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. And in fact, you are expected to terrorize the Negroes. Uh, he says many white liberals in sundown towns and suburbs worry about social ostracism. So their anti-racism never gets voiced beyond the confines of their home. Again, this could be a lie. This is the same thing. Uh, many whites are sincerely and greatly pained about racism that I've just said is a flat lie. And many whites have come on this program and said, yeah, I don't think that that's true. I don't think there's certainly no evidence uh, that these white people, they're really upset and that they have some so-called anti-racism. I think what's more accurate is what he said before, that it is expected and applauded that that is widespread and that if they're being talked to, Sometimes, pending on the time period and, you know, how they're feeling, maybe we don't want to brag about how we mistreat the Negroes. Maybe we want to, hey, you know, I, I sure do feel bad about all this. I, it's about eight or ten colors that I really love. Would love to have them as neighbors, maybe even friends. Yeah, but what, I don't want them, you know, calling me a nigger lover and all that. I got to live here. I think that that is another form of deception uh, that whites expect and applaud white supremacy. Uh, and I don't know what a white liberal is. Uh, next, I think because unless it's just me and I can check, I have the ebook, but I have heard it referenced. He says, uh, this is in Oklahoma, Mr. Fuller again, nigger, don't let the sun set on your black ass in this town. I've heard that a lot in this text, not as much as racial reconciliation and race relations, 
but I've heard that a few times. I think that is uh, some homoeroticism, Vincent Woodard, the delectable Negro, uh, because it's it's still focusing a lot of attention on the black genitals. We already had uh, some of the premise of this black male raped, looked at, was in the vicinity within 10 feet of a white woman. Uh, and we're still getting back to the genital area, rectum area that was mentioned quite a bit in delectable Negro too. Um, He says, even today, especially in sundown suburbs, many whites are still afraid of being put down by other whites as nigger lovers, though elite suburbanites may not use the term itself. So their anti-racist impulses get immobilized again. Anti-racist impulses. That is strike. I don't even know what that means. What is an anti-racist impulse? That would be a question for Mr. Lowen. Uh, Lots of minimizing white dedication to racism, white supremacy. You could not have this be a widespread problem that spans for centuries. White fathers and white children going out and roasting marshmallows and reminiscing about how they ran the Negroes out of town. You could not have that happen and be a gen. This is not the first time that I've heard that type of story. Uh, children talking about going out and participating in a lynching and talking to their grandfather or father about how he did the same thing. That cannot be a generational event. And this just be, you know, eh, I would stop all this. I want to do something. I'm upset about Tamir Rice, but they'll call me a nigger lover. Spray painted on my house. Come on. Come on. Uh, we will stop there. Uh, if you have other comments, questions, you can uh, feel free to drop an email. In fact, I'll read one comment listener wrote in. Uh, he's been writing in loyally. First comment, he says, section describing the terrorism of the boys of Syracuse, Ohio, reinforced to me the fact that at a young age, racist suspects are inculcated with the values and methods of white supremacy. Absolutely. Number two, the author provided numerous examples throughout the chapter that enforced practices of racist suspects in sundown towns is a part of recent history. Refusing to sell gas to black people. Martinsville, Indiana, during the 1990s, police in Dwight, Illinois, used the acronym New Coon and County. During the 1980s, police in Carmel, Indiana, during the 1990s, had a special tags for black employees as a result of a lawsuit harassing of black people in shopping up malls or simply closing the mall if too many black people start shopping there is discussed as happening in 2005. Uh, Pinckneyville, Illinois, 1982, a wedding bride was discouraged from inviting a black friend of her future husband to the ceremony. This information provided solid evidence on the continued and uninterrupted enforcement of the global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, one more. Uh, number three, there were numerous examples of the consequences of whites who did not follow the racist white supremacist code. Uh, Louis Stalby tells how her father was fired for befriending blacks. Again, you cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy, if you are classified as white. <laughs> white people will let you know. <laughs> oh, you help the Negro. You're ignorant about what? Well, you can take, you know, the next few weeks to get educated because you're not going to have any business. You won't have any time to shop or go through receipts because we won't be spending with you so you can get yourself up to speed, get a refresher course on what we do to Negroes. Hmm context of white supremacy. We'll be here tomorrow for Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope it was a constructive investment of your Thursday evening. Reading is more important than watching television. Sobriety would be best. 
under conditions of white terrorism. Let's preserve our brain computer so that we can crank out a solution to the problem. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.